today I got the chance to sit down and talk with Andrew Bronberg. Andrew is very educated on the history of Texas whiskey. We talked about how much more incomprehensibly drunk people were in the 17 and 1800s, how difficult distilling was, many of the mechanics of making a good whiskey, the temperance laws and prohibition, and much more. Now please sit back and learn a bit more about the lighter side of history with Andrew Bromberg. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have Andrew Bromberg. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming down. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you have kind of an interesting uh, backstory. Um, I, I did not know any of this before, um, before I was thinking about your book and reading your book, but you actually are more in my world than you are in this world in some ways. And uh, we've got some common friends. We definitely. sure do. We sure do. So, well, I think that's worth spending a couple of minutes on. Um, sure. So how, how did you get into cybersecurity and you know, I, I, I think folks that get in, well, first of all, I should say through uh, being an analyst. So I'm a research analyst, market analyst. Uh, and I think folks tend to go into that business either as a practitioner or a journalist. And I actually came from a journalist background. So that's kind of how I worked my way. Uh, but I started doing security in uh, 2003. It's been just about 20 years. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. been, a, it's been a ride. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm 28 years. This is very strange uh, to me because um, we're here to talk about whiskey, and uh, <laughs> and so this is kind of odd that we just strange confluence. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So, uh, where do you work now? I work for uh, Omdia, which is an analyst house at. Headquartered out of the UK, uh, it's got a lot of they've they've acquired a lot of parts. It reports up into Informatech, mm-hmm. uh, and Black Hat. Black Hat's a sister company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dark Readings, a sister company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the analytical components came from uh, you know places like o- Ovum, if anyone remembers those guys. So it's a nice mix of quantitative, qualitative, mm-hmm. uh, and then the events, and then the the side that really gets you into to where the CISOs are hanging out on the you know, in, in, in the end users. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so what is the day like for an analyst? I got to know, what do you, what do you spend most of your time doing? Yeah, it really depends. So, uh, we're, we're more of a, what we'd call a supply side, uh, analyst house, which means we write mostly for vendors. So it's not as if I were, uh, you know, if you're working at Gardner or maybe Forrester, you're probably spending most of your days doing, uh, end user inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is more, you know, we've got a calendar of reports we're writing. They're targeted to a specific sector that we're within our, you know, wheelhouse. Uh, and it's it's a lot of research and a lot of writing. So it, it's it's the same kind of thing I did kind of writing the book. Being an analyst uh, for me was very similar to being an author of, of nonfiction. So the journalistic... Um tools in your war chest were very useful absolutely yeah almost almost uh, complete complete mapping wow <laughs> i should say that's great yeah so okay so you're you're doing computer security analyst work and you decide i want to get into whiskey what how wh- how'd you get yeah. from point a to point b it's <laughs> a pretty big stretch i mean I'd say that a lot of security people like whiskey, but that's uh, one step further. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of funny because there is a, a, exactly a connection, which was I was going out to RSA one year, and this goes back to, I don't know, we're probably going back to like 2010, and uh, I'm working for another analyst house at the time, 
Uh, and I've got a bunch of coworkers there who are big scotch, scotch drinkers. Mm-hmm. We got a little scotch club at work. You know, I think a lot of folks did b- before remote was mm-hmm. kind of the way people. Uh, and so we were always kind of keeping each other up on, on new whiskeys, you know, but, but again, mostly scotches. But then I had this guy send me this article and it, it had come out in the, uh, San Francisco Chronicle actually. And it was about white whiskeys. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this. white whiskeys, huh? And again, you know, this is almost 15 years ago. So I'm like, well, what? You know, so come to find out, you've got these American craft distillers that are kind of coming on to the scene, which is something I didn't really know much about. Again, I'd been spending my time thinking about scotches for, for 10 years or so. Um, and the way the economics of that business work, you know, it's not like you can just start up a distillery, say I'm making whiskey, and then come back 10 years later and say, here's my 10-year-old mm-hmm. scotch, right? right? So these guys were releasing what they call white whiskeys. You know, uh, we would kind of, most people would think they would be reminiscent of a moonshine, right? Because they're going to be clear, and that's why they call them white. And, and that's mostly because they haven't spent any time in barrels. And they have not spent any time in wood at all, right? So it's something pretty foreign to a lot of, of folks. I mean, there's other, you know, traditional clears that, that are, but, but not so much in the whiskey space. So I said, well, you know, it ended up, uh, there was a, a bar they recommended in, uh, in San Francisco that uh, they said had a lot of them that, that were worth trying. And since I was going out for RSA anyway, I just went out that Sunday before the show. I head down to this bar and uh, I walk in and it, and it, it's given off the place is given off a real day drinking vibe, but there's really no one, (laughs) really no one in there. There's one guy, one older guy uh, sitting at the bar drinking PBR out of a can. And that's, that's yeah, the whole, that's, that's, that's the Sunday afternoon <laughs> scene, man. You know? <laughs> so I figure, well, at least the bartender's going to be happy to help me out, right? Yeah. So uh, I go up and, you know, I mentioned the article and, hey, you know, what, what's with all these white whiskeys and everything? Uh, the guy just couldn't, the bartender couldn't care less, man. He just like, he looked, he kind of pretended he was going to find what I was looking for. And, um, Long short, I, I was about to just kind of walk out of the place thinking I wasn't going to get my, you know, my tasting in. Mm-hmm. And so this guy, again, this old guy pops up off the bar and he walks the, the around. The PBR guy? Yeah, the PBR guy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much just us in there. <laughs> and he waves, the, he waves the bartender off. <clears throat> and so I figure he owns the place, right? I mean, well, how's he, you know, well... Anyway, long short, he did not own the place. He was a uh, he was kind of a roving ambassador for uh, the Amer- American Distilling Institute, uh, which becomes important here in a minute of this kind of drawn out story. But um, so he he starts pulling them. He knows where they all are. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he pulls them down. He sets them up with a flight. We kind of walk through him. You know, we're talking about you know, and and he's very knowledgeable because the ADI that time was really the only kind of um, umbrella group trying to represent craft distillers in the United States. And so I'm learning a ton, like in just an hour, right? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like trying these different products that I didn't know about, seeing all these different distilleries. They're from all over the country, which is really fascinating to me. You know, I mean, they're not great, but you could kind of feel like you could get used to them. Like I remember, in what way? Just very um, well. You got to change. You got to change your expectation, right? Uh Because uh, oak oak 
provides at least 50% of the overall flavor in a, in a typical American whiskey, right? Uh, and so a lot of people, that's exactly what they're expecting, and that's what they prefer. But another conversation we can have is, you know, is that really the right flavor profile that, you know, a new, new American whiskey should be shooting for? Mm. I mean, in my mind, we could probably pull back a lot of that oak flavor, and think about some of the different flavor components that come into an American whiskey. Or, well, grains, you know, being a, 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 the next obvious one, right? Um, but anyway. Or types so, of sugar is probably another one. Yep. You know, I mean, there's just different, there's, there's different ways we could think about what a whiskey should taste like. And the regionality conversation is another really important part of this. But uh you know so that in itself was like really interesting but then this guy ends up his name's dino uh dino says hey you know we're doing a um we're doing a book signing uh later in the week uh once you come back we'll get you in the back and you can hang out uh and this guy had written a book uh it's called chasing the white dog uh, and it was about his adventures back on the East Coast and moonshining in southwestern Virginia. Pretty interesting read. He was there kind of just talking about kind of that crazy moonshiner <clears throat> kind of experience. It's, it was still going on even, probably still is today in that part of the country. But what really blew me away was they had four or five craft distillers that were there doing pours. And... They were just doing some really amazing. You know, you could tell, first of all, none of them were trying to be uh, Kentucky whiskey. They were just doing the things that made sense where they were. Uh, and so they had one well, of and them. what does that mean? What? Well, you know, you think about what, what the regionality in the area that you're in uh, and what might make sense. It might not be whiskey. And so there was an example of a, <clears throat> a little distillery in uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Grand Junction has uh, had a long, like, you know, since it was founded, over 100 years, it had been a, a fruit-producing region. So they were making these different, uh, you know, uh, fruit-based. Uh, it's like brandies almost? Yeah, uh, fruit, different, different brandies, uh, even a grappa, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, wow, you know, who would have thought to do this? Kind of like just in a, in, in, you yeah, know, just I'm going to start, start a grappa company, you know. It just, anyway, it just thought, it just seemed very innovative to me. And so that's that's part of the, the, the interest was just like, well, what do you, what sugars do you have to work with? That's always the distiller is going to try to figure out, like, what, what can I ferment and then what can I distill, right? And the Texas history is interesting that way too, right? The Spanish initially who were distilling in Texas 400 years ago were growing grapes down on the Rio Grande. They would make wine and they'd distill that in the brandy. The first, uh, during the Austin colony in early uh, Anglo-Texas, they were trying to make uh, sugar plantations. So they're going to try to make rum from that if they've got an excess. So it really just depends, you know, what you've got to work with. And But there were some decent whiskeys, too. I mean, none of them obviously were that old. But it got me thinking about, again, about regionality. And I'd been mostly, in my mind, whiskey was scotch. And the, and the neatest thing in my mind about scotch was always that there were these different little regional, I mean, highland and uh, lowland, you just, you, you've got very different flavor profiles. And so <clears throat> I came back from that just completely uh, fixated on the idea of trying to do a little home distillation. 
And so I did that. And again, so that's, you know, 2010-ish. I'm doing that for a couple of years. And then how I how up, legal is that, actually? I, yeah. I, I have no idea if that's legal. This isn't going to get broadcast. Of course, just, just, <laughs> just tens of thousands of people. It's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I should say it's it's definitely not. Yeah, it's but, definitely not legal. But interesting. Um, but yeah. it seems. But you can do breweries. I mean, you can still. Or you can uh, brew beer, which is yeah. Seems odd. Well, be... there's a couple reasons. One, and and this is another interesting kind of conversation to have at some point, but. The, the 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 tax structure around alcohol uh, has always been strongest around spirits and the amount of money the federal government's made since the Civil War on taxing spirits is just absolutely amazing and by far the most regulated industry in America uh, you know between 1865 at the end of the Civil War and and prohibition. Well, you, you can't go that far. Maybe up until the Food and Drug Act in, you know, uh, 1906. No, no, no industry is regulated anywhere near to the degree that spirits are, and, and beer to a lesser degree, uh, because of the tax because of the tax money they want for it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so even pharmaceuticals, you know, I mean, they just, they're not, they're not trying to put any kind of regulations around it. But the regulations around alcohol were very much geared towards simply tax revenue and not adulteration or, you know, anything else or, or trying to reduce, you could say, well, the tax is there to reduce consumption. No, not, not that either. Right. So, but anyway, uh, I do that for a couple of years, maybe not fully legally (laughs) and, uh, moved to Austin in 2012, at which point my wife and I almost immediately, meet up with another couple who have a scheme, a very similar scheme, and that's kind of, you know, where things take how, off. How did you meet them? We were living in a uh, – I'd come down to work for Ennis Labs, uh, which is out in Westlake here in Austin. Um, we were just – at the time, for the first couple of years, we were just coming down uh, kind of winter, spring, and we, we were in Santa Fe at the time, and we didn't want to sell the house. So we'd do six months, six months. And Santa so anyway, is beautiful. Yeah, very nice and – Beat summer in Austin. Yeah. I mean, forgive me, but yeah, yeah absolutely. No, right? You don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> no apologies. Yeah, no. <laughs> Texans running up. It's to been this. over 100 degrees all week. So yeah, it's been pretty brutal. <laughs> um, but uh, so we were just renting uh, an apartment downtown in one of the towers, met a couple in the elevator, started kind of having dinner with them. These were relatives of those folks that were, and they were kind of snowburdened too. So yeah. Similar. Yeah. So why don't we start talking about the book? Like, how did you get the the idea that this is something you wanted to write? I guess the the easy answer is there's a couple answers to that. The this the the quickest one is right when still Austin finally launched, which was 2017. Mm-hmm. I read an article in Texas Monthly called "The Great Texas Whiskey Boom." And it had a line in there from a pretty well-known spirits historian, Michael Beach, uh, that said, said basically, Texas never had a pre-prohibition whiskey history on the production side. No, they never had a registered. That doesn't uh, sound right. Well, right. That can't be right. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Right. That, and that's exactly like I put it down and I thought two things. One, that can't be right. 
And why do they need to call Veach up in Louisville to ask him that question, right? Is there not a Texas historian that they could have called? I mean, come on, it's Texas Monthly. Uh, and it ends up there probably wasn't. <laughs> because, yeah. uh, and so I'm not trying to dog Veach. He's a good, a good historian. He writes a lot of good stuff. But, again, he's got a focus in, um, in Kentucky. And so I started that was one germ. Like, like well, let me just, you know, peel that back. Well, one thing I come to find out uh, is that uh, Dan Garrison, who had the first registered pro, uh, post-prohibition whiskey distillery out in High, uh, had put up a sign in, in front of his distillery that said, first legal distillery, first legal whiskey distillery in Texas. Huh. Right? He thought the same thing. He, he didn't know. And, and, you know, Dan's an old Texan, right? So, I mean, now I'm thinking, well, no one knows this history, right? <laughs> Uh, but I had been doing, I, at the time, <clears throat> for the couple years before uh, Still Austin opened its doors, uh, I was kind of running production in the back, kind of, <clears throat> you know, operations manager kind of thing, and helping the head distiller to um, think about kind of what our <clears throat> product portfolio should be. And we're thinking very much, in, and again, in my mind, the interesting part of all this is thinking about regionality, What's a Texas whiskey supposed to taste like? You know, what, what, what's the mash bill, you know, particularly? Mm-hmm. How long is it going to have to age? You know, all those things got to be rethought when you come into this environment. And Texas has got just this tremendous um, uh, agricultural history, which I guess most people know. But <clears throat> back pre-Prohibition, it was, uh, there was a lot of wheat being grown. And, you know, now it's, uh, I think, a lot more... Uh, corn and nothing wrong with that for for whiskey obviously but uh, a lot of soft wheats back back then uh, some rye. <clears throat> the only thing that uh, oat grows great in texas the only thing that doesn't grow really too well is probably barley I mean, you know up in the panhandle it's got to be a little cooler and <clears throat> and drier uh and so um you know I, I was doing research just to look into some of those old heirloom grains kind of the heritage there uh, to, to try to figure out, well, let's see if we can find out what folks were uh, producing back then. Because, again, in my mind, it wasn't even a question like, of course, someone was making whiskey back then. It was just a matter of tracking them down, right? Uh, and so first step, though, was really finding out what were the grains that were being grown in Texas. And that at least gives you a roadmap for what was in the realm of the, of the possible. Mm-hmm. And so from there, you're like, okay, it's time to write a book. Like now you've got this, this kind of corpus of information or like, well, ready to go. I had a lot of background uh, knowledge there that I'd been kind of, and then when I left the day-to-day operation at still Austin, which was, you know, 2020 ish, I had a I had a, a little more free time on my hands, so I figured, why don't I think about kind of putting this together and see how much is there? You know, is there a book there? Is there an article there? You know, and you know how that goes. Eighteen months later, I'm like, oh hell yeah, this is a book. <laughs> I'm almost there. I've got it. And yeah, and that was pretty much you know, that was pretty much it. So not to jump ahead too much, but. Um what uh, what were the reactions from the, the various historians around that uh, got our hands on it? 
Yeah, that you know that's a good question because one, let me let me back up on that one for a minute. You know, the idea that the which I kind of alluded to was that you know a lot of that history had been lost, uh, and no and no one knew. You know, even Dan Garrison didn't know. Um, but another way to look at it is it was erased, right? It wasn't lost. It was it was consciously you know just written out of the history. And I think when you look at a lot of those, you kind of think about, you know, when Texas kind of came uh, into its own independence and then statehood, um, you can kind of line up to where when a lot of those, you know, a really nice resource uh, when you start drilling down is the county histories. And Texas, you know, Texas loves its history, right, for the non-Texans and the in the audience, I mean, the Mayflower band's got nothing on the old 300 in Texas. I mean, those original families. You know, you mention any of these old guys, and I guarantee someone will go, oh, you know, by the way, I'm related to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and so uh, you, you can find someone in the record, and you can be really sure, oh, yeah, this guy was a distiller, right? But then when you go back and you look to try to drill in, especially at the county level, It'll say something weird like, yeah, he went off to, you know, Lamar County for a couple of years and ran a business, you know. They'll never, they'll never mention. Which business. Which business, right. Huh. So you've got to have some other information to even figure out, is that the guy I'm really looking for? Well, yeah, he owned a mill, and that's kind of a, a tell, right, because there was that, you know, frontier bit there. Uh, so anyway, that was, that was part of the problem. So that, that's kind of one interesting kind of complication about writing you know i guess it'd be like writing about advice you know if you're trying to write the history of vice in dallas it might be a little tricky too um but then once you get it written and i guess that is a segue into vice uh the publisher i had was uh kind of is an academic publisher uh and it and they kind of um roll up in the Texas A&M press is basically what it is. And I did get a little pushback from them, not in a bad way. They weren't trying to censor me necessarily, but making suggestions around kind of how some of this history uh, might make Texas look, you know, and I think, I think still. And what was the implication? What do they mean? Look, what does that mean? Well, that, uh, uh, that, uh, it, it, maybe it wasn't putting the the best face on Texas, right? I mean that history of uh, of uh, gambling, drinking, violence. Uh, it's all part of the story, right? And to me, it it, it kind of, in a lot of ways, is a more interesting yeah. part of the story, right? One hundred percent. So for anyone who has not read this, I think it's actually kind of makes <laughs> Texas look kind of romantic and mm-hmm. interesting because there's. I think there's a, a predisposition for people to think, you know, it was just a bunch of cowboys and and uh, planes and that was it. But there was a lot of things going on in the states, um, you know, wars and, you know, various different like, you know, taxation issues causing all kinds of downstream effects of people kind of scurrying around, making new businesses, destroying the businesses. I mean, this is a very deep thing and this is... This is as interesting from a historical perspective as any historical thing I've ever read. And yes, obviously, it had to do with prostitution. And yes, it had to do with gambling. And yes, it had to do with, you know, cowboy rustlers and all kinds of different versions of bad characters. 
but it was also just every person in Texas was a drinker for the most part. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was, I, what you had some crazy stats in there. I wish I had written it down. Oh, I, what, what, I what probably are, remember a couple okay, of go, them. Go ahead. Well, the, the first thing that I think everyone's got to keep in mind is that the absolute height of drunkenness in North America was the 1830s. I mean, you can look at the numbers. Which is surprising, actually. It's, I, it's surprising. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I know enough people who drink constantly. <laughs> we've we've got to be in the running, but apparently not. I think more, I think, you know, there's a quote or two in there, you know, from some established historians that will say, basically everybody on the frontier was drunk all the time, you know. And, uh, and I don't think that was too far from the truth in the 1830s. And, of course, Texas, you know, was founded in the 1830s as far as, you know, winning independence. Uh, and so you've got, you know, for example, uh, Sam Houston, who's a famous early Texan, his Native American name was Big Drunk. It translated into <laughs> Big Drunk. I mean, you know, and there's, I, I think I've got a quote in there, you know, where they compare Houston to Lamar and some of those other early uh, uh governors and lieutenant governors, et cetera. And they're like, just, you know, even, even Houston drunk in a ditch is better than these other guys. I mean, he had a really strong uh, following. And so I think that level of, of just acceptance of drunkenness was very, very different. So what are we talking about? How, how much more drunk was the 1830s than the 2000s? If you look at the numbers, so on average, it's about a 3x it's about a 3x addition now you know does that I, I i think there's only so much people can drink so you know right i mean I, uh, you know the numbers in there would be you're going to be at least drinking 10 or 12 you know drinks Daily. a day oh yeah oh yeah uh and that's and, every day that's oh, not, that's every that's, day that's not a bender that's that, a, no yeah no <laughs> that's just a tuesday <laughs> a bender <laughs> a bender would be a 24-hour, you know, uh, you're drinking a lot more than that. Uh, so I think what you have to assume is just a much larger percentage of the population was drinking to that level. And I remember they were self-medicating too, right, both physically and mentally, I'm sure, you know. so That's a good point. Medicine had not exactly caught up by that point. Yeah, and, and uh, alcohol and whiskey particularly was considered medicinal, you know, really up through, up till – Prohibition. I mean, there's a bit of a funny story where the American Medical Association or the equivalent, I forget if they were actually around then, they probably were, um, had declassified whiskey as medicinal until prohibition hit. And then someone decided, uh, hold on, <laughs> I, I see a loophole and a moneymaker for us. And medicinal whiskey came back and was their pharmacists and, and Doctors made quite a quite a lot of money. I off bet. Of that. that was one of the one of several big loopholes in uh, in the Volstead Act. Pharmacists making money off of the population. Yeah, medicating them any way they can now, for the, hundreds of years. Uh, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, now there were. That's not to say there wasn't a strong prohibitionist element that ran through Texas history, and it's and it's really interesting to me that uh, S Steve Austin, so the Austin Colony. Uh, was was the really con that it, he's considered the father of modern Texas, right? Because he got that colony started after his father died. And it, again, I mentioned the original three hundred. So these these three hundred families that came as the original um, <clears throat> colonists. Uh, one of them was uh, Martin Varner, and he had a sugar plantation. He started up down outside of uh, West Columbia. 
Uh, and uh, he was successful enough that he, he had uh, enough uh, additional molasses to try to make some rum. And he, uh, he thought that was great. He thought, and, and he, he was proud of it enough that he sent a bottle to Steve Austin to, I think, try to get his blessing. In uh, the in the letter that Austin sent back to Varner's partner Israel Walters, it's quite a read. I mean, clearly uh, Austin would rather choke this guy than have him making, you know, spirits in Texas. And and it's a long letter, and he finally comes around after really really dogging him about you know <laughs> how the lowest form of of, uh, of folks or producers of uh, ardent spirits as they'd call them back then. Uh, but at the end, he, he, he makes that pragmatic turn that you see quite a bit in the history of, of spirits in Texas where he says, yeah, but, you know, it, it would be so great if people wouldn't drink in Texas, but damn if I know a way to keep them from doing it. So, again, if there's a revenue opportunity here for Texans, you know, maybe we should take it. And so even at that, even, you know, really very pragmatic, very pragmatic, even pre-independence. Right. And then, and you'll see that, right. You'll see that all the way up until, and so by the 1890s, 1900, which is still, you know, uh, a fair way away from national prohibition, uh, which isn't until 1919, uh, a lot of Texas has already dried out and they're doing it county by county. That seems very odd to me. So they really wanted to shut it down, but but why? Are they worried about people just falling down drunk in the middle of the street? Like what was what was the what was the day like for an average person in that time frame? Yeah, I think it's it depends on exactly when in that time frame. I think when you're talking, you know, pre Civil War, uh, I think it's more just uh, the absolute drunkenness, right? So you'll see when uh, uh, folks are moving out into a new, they're moving out on the further into the plains, <clears throat> further into that, that frontier, if we were calling it that. Uh, it's very common for the folks that, that move into that new area to get together and uh, form a temperance group even before they'll think about putting a church up, right? The, really, the first thing they think about is, how are we going to handle drunkenness in this new community, right? And that, to me, is just strictly about a severe level <laughs> of alcoholism going on with a lot of people, right? Wow. Now, that's very different. Once, well, you know, once Texas is more settled, the conversation shifts very much to the uh, vices that tend to surround saloons, right? And that, and that's that. So I think there's really, and we can probably make the, the split at the Civil War, right? Before then, it's more about just moving into new spaces and really working temperance as opposed to prohibition, right? It's moral suasion. How are we just gonna? How are we gonna just keep people uh, from drinking just because we're gonna? You know, we're gonna we're gonna try to. Uh, make them feel like it, it, it's ostracizing them from the community. I would say, you know, one really interesting bit uh, as we move, you know, post-Civil War uh, and really start trying to move towards prohibition, that the re- Texas ends up, even with all their success with the local option laws, uh, when national prohibition finally hits, they're one of the few ex-Confederate states that actually hadn't 
got a full statewide prohibition in place. So, you know, they dried out all the rural areas, but there's these urban strongholds where they just can't make any headway and they can't, they can never win the popular vote statewide. And, and it's interesting because I think um, temperance, again, as opposed to, to prohibition, worked really well in a lot of communities. I mean, the German Americans they thought it was just a joke to think about prohibition. They had a vote, one of the constitutional amendment votes they did in the 1880s. Uh, the the um, voting records are still there in New Bronzefelds. Zero, zero votes for, you know, passing this thing out of hundreds of, of people uh, of, in that journey. Love the Germans. <laughs> right. well, and I think the Mexican-Americans were the same way. I think, you know, again, temperance worked well in a lot of those communities right uh and but for uh a lot of the appalachian uh folks coming in and particularly in the northeast part of uh, texas uh they were very much driven to to look for another uh, solution and that was uh that was prohibition and what happened was it became an easier argument to make uh, as the number of saloons really multiplied, you know, from like the 1870s through to say 1900, yeah, there was a, you know, there were a, there were a lot of saloons, and and you know, you could tie a lot of violence and uh, uh, gambling certainly to lesser degree prostitution uh, to these establishments, and that became the way to kind of turn the middle class. Uh, against the idea of, of alcohol at all. So this actually kind of surprised me. I didn't realize there was actually vice areas, like sort of designated places inside these larger cities where where this was sort of, this happens and everyone just kind of looks the other way. Oh, absolutely. So uh, and, and every, how, how did that come about? <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of joke in the book, it's so, you know, proper people know how to avoid it and everyone else knows where to find it. I think that's, <laughs> that's honestly not probably far from the, from the truth, you know. But, but literally every, I mean, even, you know, kind of Waco size, you know, uh, certainly Houston, Galveston, uh, you know, yeah, they've, they've all got these areas. Uh, and um, I, the, the interesting thing is that for the bigger towns, I forget exactly, but I think Houston and Dallas, I remember for sure, uh, for a time had, had thought about just completely legalizing those, those areas, right? And, and so most of the time they're just kind of in a gray zone, you know, and it's like Hell's Half Acre in Fort Worth was probably the most famous of them. Uh, and just had this, you know, certainly statewide reputation. It's just a place you really, uh, you, you didn't want to just wander in there unawares, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think it, w- it, was, it was probably the best if you were, um, if you were trying to limit uh, this kind of activity, probably the best you could hope for was that it would at least be bounded in a way that you, you could, uh, you know, reasonably avoid it. If you wanted to. So I think it'd be worth now talking a little bit about the <clears throat> the mechanics of alcohol. So can you tell me the difference between like bourbon and rye and whiskey versus scotch, et cetera? Like, mm-hmm. can you kind of like, how do you clearly define and distinguish them or either from your palate or how they're made? 
Yeah, uh, it, it's really, it, it sounds complicated because we've got these things called standards of identity, you know, and it sounds like, oh, okay, that sounds like it's a long list of things. It's really not. I mean, you start, <clears throat> the highest level is whiskey. Whiskey is uh, any uh, product uh, st- distilled from a fermented grain, right? Uh, and so grains cover a fair amount of, of different uh, categories or, or agricultural products. So corn, wheat, rye, oats, I mean, anything that falls into that could theoretically become whiskey. And so in the U.S., we've got several, uh, we've got several uh, standards of identity, as I say. The, the, the most um, well-known is going to be bourbon. Uh, and bourbon is uh, now the, the main uh, requirement is, again, around that mash bill, we would call it, which is what grains are we using to produce to f- that we're, we're going to ferment and then distill. And so for a bourbon, the mash bill, the recipe, if you will, it's got to be at least 51% corn. And then the rest of it we can talk about, but that's the main thing, right? And so you're going to take some amount of grains, you're going to mix them together, you're going to basically make beer out of it, right? So a bourbon is a whiskey. Then. A bourbon is a subcategory of whiskey, correct. Okay. Uh, a rye, same thing. It would be a subcategory. As long as it's made with grains, unless we start talking about taft, the taft decision, which will get <laughs> a little more complicated. Sure, we can talk about uh, that. But that's, but that's, that's you know, not that's pre-prohibition, uh, but yeah. So uh, the, your American whiskeys uh, uh, identities would be uh, bourbon, corn whiskey, and and so corn whiskey would be eighty percent corn uh, or above. And now, th- which brings up another which would probably be sweeter, I'd imagine, a little bit sweeter, and it's sweeter for another reason because corn whiskey is the only one of these where you don't have to put it in new American oak, right? It can go in a used barrel. So it's not going to pull as many of the tannins. It's not going to get, like if you put that corn whiskey in a used bourbon barrel, that barrel's already kind of sweet as it is, and all that extra corn's going to make it even sweeter, right? Uh, so uh, then you could have a rye whiskey, again, another subclass of, of just American whiskey or uh, a wheat whiskey. Uh, now, where it gets a little more complicated is you've probably heard of a high rye bourbon. Well, what's that, right? So uh, what you've got in any... Uh, American whiskey uh, is a secondary grain. So you've got that primary grain that's going to be the designation, either, you know, bourbon, corn whiskey, uh, rye. Uh, And then you've got the secondary grain, which they call a flavor grain. And the flavor grain is going to usually just add another note to that whiskey. So uh, in bourbon, what percentage of it is that uh, flavored grain? Yeah, so that that uh, that's the that's the secret sauce, right? For for the, for a lot of these distillers, what the only other thing that's typically put in there, and this is more for historic reasons, is a little bit of malted barley. And the malted barley, uh, again, historically was put there because uh, barley has more enzymes that can convert the starches from the grains into simple sugars that can be fermented. The, the yeast can't ferment starch molecules. We've got to splice them up a little bit into sugars, simpler sugars, 
uh, and then the yeast can do its work. So you've always got 5 or 10% of malted barley in there just historically, and, and that tends to still be the case, even though you can add artif- uh, you can add additional enzymes that have been you know, kind of isolated now. So let's say we need at least 50-plus percent of your main grain and 10 uh, of this uh, of barley. So that leaves you 40, 40% to play with. Uh, so, but, but that's typically much more than most folks would use. So again, a high rye bourbon would probably have less than 20% rye as your flavor grain. Probably have 65, 70% corn mm-hmm. in it. And then that rye is going to give it those spicy notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a little bit of a malted barley on the back end. It's kind of would be a, a very typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds and, pretty sweet as well. Yeah, it would be pretty sweet. And it's interesting because like um, for a lot of ryes, they tend to be much more like a uh, M- M- MGP is a kind of a famous uh, 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 distiller that sources out to a lot of other distilleries. Uh, and they had a, a rye that they sold quite a bit that was 95% rye and 5% uh, barley, so no flavor, no. But you know, if, if rye is your leader, then it's kind of hard to f- match a flavor grain of that. So they basically do. You know, I guess I'm, it's harder to complement that rye flavor than it is to add a flavor to corn, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted an even sweeter something, uh, you would do a weeded bourbon, right? And so there's a lot of weeded bourbons that people like quite a bit, but they've certainly got a, a, a softer a softer taste than... Uh, what than about just adding more sugar into the mash? Um, more yeah, molasses or whatever? Yeah, for, for, uh, for an American whiskey that's not, uh, that's not allowed. The, all the sugar has to come from that converted grain. Interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, anything that had sugar in it would either be... You know, just uh, like a uh, like a, a simple moonshine, or if you're thinking broadly about sugar, maybe a a, a, a rum, right? If it was molasses or, or cane sugar, sure, yeah. interesting. And so, how does that uh, how is that different from like Irish or Scotch whiskey? Yeah, so um, they've got their own standards of identity, which I don't know as well. But um, uh, Scotch is. Uh, is a completely different animal in that it's going to be uh, completely malted barley, right? So Scotch is uh, is all mal- malted barley, and then they'll, uh, you know, occasionally do what they call grain whiskeys. If they're making a blend, maybe they could they could use something that uh, you know had some corn or some some wheat in it. The uh, the Irish whiskey, I don't, I honestly don't know what a typical Irish whiskey uh, mash bill looks like. Um, they, you know, w- we know that the flavor profiles though, right? They tend to be softer. They'll distill them down. I think they'll distill them at a higher, uh, a higher proof, which, which actually is one other thing I should mention about the standards of identity. Uh, so then another question might be, uh, you know, what's the difference between vodka and, uh, in whiskey? Uh, and on the, on the vodka front, it's not so much the grain or the sugar they're using; uh, it's the degree of distillation when they make it, right? So uh, what they're trying to do is to uh, make basically a neutral spirit, 
And so they can use any grain or they can use, excuse me, any sugar that they want to. And, you know, we know there's wheat vodkas, there's beet vodkas, there's potato vodka, right? Mm. I mean, uh, but they need to distill it at least at 190 proof, which is which is pretty pure, which is pretty pure. And then they cut it clearly. There's no way that stays that high. Yeah, yeah. They'll, 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 they'll put it down to a, to a bottling proof. But so in comparison uh, for American whiskey, uh, you can't pull an American whiskey off higher than 165 proof, right? Is that, uh, uh, is that a nature of the yeast or something? Or? No, that's just that they don't want you to pull too much of those flavors out of it. They don't want it to be vodka, right? And so there's, there's this, you know, how, <clears throat> how much of the funk should be left in there, basically, <laughs> that you're going to have to age out later, right? And then that's, that's a big part of the art to it, right? Uh, so you distill it at, uh, you know, anywhere, I think, between I, – I, I, there might not be a lower bound, actually, now I think about it. But you don't want it to be – if you move up too high, and it might be 160 proof. Apologies. Kind of having a blanket on that. 160, 165. Above that, it becomes a light whiskey designation, uh, which some people make, but but it's not a real popular. It's it, it would be kind of a lighter sipper, right? Uh, but but basically, what folks do is they That'd distill be pretty darn strong, uh, over 160 proof. Yeah, but Oof. again, that's just coming off the still. So at that point, but still, so is that st- is that a white uh, whiskey as well? Yeah. So at that point, you're still white. You're just coming off the still, going into the cistern, and now you got to decide what to do with it, right? And so. What are your options? Well, you could just distill it down to some bottling proof and just sell it as a as a white dog, right? And you know, uh, I think you're not going to go below about eighty proof for an American whiskey as a bottling proof, right? But if you put it in wood, then uh, you've got to deal with what's the barrel proof restrictions. And in the U.S., for any of the classifications of whiskey we've been talking about, uh, you can't put it in at a proof higher than 125. And again, now that's just, just going in the barrel. It's going to sit in there. When it comes out of the barrel, you can proof it down to your bottling proof. Um, so that, that, and, that's, and that's with like distilled water or something? How do they do uh, it? Yeah, typically, I think in a modern, I mean, it's still, I know we just used RO for sure. You don't want to take any chances, reverse osmosis, you know. You don't want to, a lot of people talk about their water, but I mean, honestly, that's a variable that a lot of people just want to eliminate because yeah. they really don't want to take any chances with the water being a little funny. So, yeah, right. you know, just completely clean it out. Because uh, the minerals might add a lot of weirdness to the water well i think the reason that uh the in kentucky they were so keen on always talking about the limestone water was that it pulled the limestone pulled the iron out of the water is the story i remember and the iron could cause some really funkiness when you're when you're uh uh, fermenting Mm -hmm. and so that was something you wanted to try to get rid of of course ro you know we'll get rid of that for you um but those are kind of the so that that mash bill your distillation Proof, what you're, you're, you're pulling it off at, we would say, and what you barrel at are kind of three of your really big toggles that you've got to play with when you're trying to make a whiskey. And then I guess a fourth one would be not just barrel proof, but what kind of barrel 
you're putting this into. Yeah, so what kind of barrels do you typically use? Well, again, for most of the designations that we're talking about, it's got to go in a new barrel. And this was some Brand kind new. of, Brand yeah, new. I mean, one one use. This was like the, wow. you know, the Cooper's employment rule that they someone came up with and very successfully. Like you could deforest a, a species pretty quick if you just use Well, what, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the scotches, they, uh, they, and if you go, I'll tell you, if anyone's in Louisville, a really great tour is to go over to Kelvin Cooperage that's in North North Louisville and try to get them to let you walk through. Watching those guys build barrels is one of the coolest things. Of all the stuff I've done kind of around distilleries, man, the barrel side is just really just so, so interesting. Um, and, and, you know, just really hard work and, you know, those guys really, they're earning it for sure. But, but it made me think about it because Kelvin had set up the, it was a couple of Scottish brothers, uh, that came to Louisville. They were Coopers. Uh, and this would go back, this might go back 30 or 40 years when they first got going, but they were basically just buying used bourbon barrels from the big Kentucky, uh, bourbon houses uh, at that point, I think that the general way uh, that they would transport them is they'd call them shakes and they would they'd look them over if they needed, uh, you know, some repair. They could do spot repair, but they'd have to break the barrels down to like change out a stave or something. Right. And the staves are kind of those vertical uh, pieces of oak. They kind of is what the barrels made out of. Uh, and then they'd break them down. They'd put them on a ship, and they'd send them over to Skyland, and someone on the other side would build them back up and sell them to the Scottish distilleries because all that scotch goes into used, almost all of it goes into used bourbon barrels. Some use sherry barrels. but uh, And, you know, so there's a lot of reasons that uh, scotches are got that completely different flavor profile. But also, if you've noticed, scotches usually don't have that, that bourbon red kind of color to them. You know, if you hold a, or even a very old scotch up, you know, it's more of a straw color and that's because they don't typically use new uh new oak and of, of course in the u.s that new oak is is almost always charred right mm-hmm. so it's going to impart a lot of color like uh like immediately mm-hmm. um and so uh the 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 the, the um uh, kelvin guys just to close that idea um soon found uh that there was uh, a couple of th- things changed in the market one the shipping containers got so uh, cheap and easy, they didn't even have to break those things down anymore. They just kind of come off one container from uh, Jack Daniels, whoever they're buying from. They'll do a really quick cursory look, make sure, you know, if any of them need any work. Uh, otherwise, they'll just put them in the back in the container and send them off. It's a really nice business for them. But it got them uh, to the point where they started making their own, and they're one of the the – you know, ISC is by far the largest U.S. Uh, cooperage for um, spirits and wine barrels. Uh, but Kelvin's a nice, a nice competitor, and that's kind of they got their start just repurposing for this for the Scots, and now they're building their own, and a lot of people are using their their American oak. So, where does peat moss come about in that flavor profile from the Scotch? Yeah. So again, remember that uh, the Scotches are are all um, malted barley, right? That's their mash bill. It's just a hundred percent barley. But what does malted mean? Well, 
<laughs> you know, nothing's easy, right? So it's not like you're just grinding the corn like we do uh, with a lot of bourbons, right? I mean, the grain doesn't need a huge amount of, uh, of uh, uh, caressing, if you will, uh, in, in American uh, spirits. Uh, but the barley, going back to my idea that they've got these enzymes that are very useful for doing that conversion of starch to sugar, uh, and again, that's just something, you know, just uh, um, and nature uh, added that to make the barley uh, 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 be able to feed itself when, when that fell into the ground, that seed, right? Because that's just the seed and that's, you know, that, that uh, sprout's going to need, you know, to do that conversion. Very efficient with barley, it ends up. Uh, and so... Uh, to express those enzymes, you've got to do uh, a heating of the barley, and that's the malting process. And it's, uh, again, if you want to see this in action, uh, Tex Malt up in Fort Worth, they're, th- those guys, man, they're, they're this crew of young dudes uh, who for some reason decided they wanted to do floor malting on their own, and they're just killing it, man. They're just really killing it. Uh, they've expanded like four or five times since I've known them. Uh, and they're out there just like you can think with these big rakes and they're just kind of raking this, you know, so you're going to heat this stuff up and get it to a certain temperature. It's got to be a certain humidity level. And you got to make sure, of course, no mold or anything weird happens to it while it's drying back out. Right. Uh, so that's kind of this malting process. Uh, and historically in Scotland, the, uh, heat source you would use to do all that, that heating to do all the work would be peat. Because that's that's kind of what they've got to work with, and you know, again, I mean, don't overthink where all these flavor profiles come from. It's again regionality. It's like, what do you got to work with? Well, I got I got I got, got moss. I got <laughs> I've got barley, and I've got some peat that I used to heat my house and get my tea cooking in the morning, and I'm going to use it for this too. And that's why it's more prominent in some parts of Scotland and scotches, right? Uh, than it is in others where they might have had other sources of uh, of uh, of heat uh, and fuel, I guess I should say. Uh, so that's kind of how that that kind of came about. And some people, and I, I'll tell you, I'm a I'm a peat guy. I you mean, like peat moss? Lagavulin right. sixteen was my was definitely my jam okay, when I, I was I a got, Scotch guy. I got one good story about peat moss. <laughs> so I I used to go into bars and just order like one thing that I had not had before. Like just, just trying to make sure I kind of understand the flavors and I would even order, I know it sounds weird, but like uh, the mixers just by themselves, just so I can kind of tell what's going to be, what the drink should taste like, what it's going to taste like. But the first time I went and I had scotch, (laughs) this is actually kind of embarrassing, but uh, I ordered, I'm not going to say which one it was, but I got this very nice uh, scotch off the wall and you know, the bartender is kind of like whatever, you know, it was kind of like you're talking day drinking. There's nobody in there. And so he pours me a thing and I, I take a sip and I'm like, Oh, there's something very wrong with this. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, Oh, is it, you know, so he pours himself a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. He tries it. He's like, Oh yes. Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. Uh, the bottle must've gone bad. Mm-hmm. Pours the whole bottle out throws it in the trash. So like, I'm really sorry. It gets another one off the wall, opens it up, pours me. And I'm like, I take a sip. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> that is exactly what that's supposed to taste like. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> that was probably a multi hundred dollar mistake. But, uh, anyway, that was my first introduction to peat moss. 
I would say that my personal flavor profile that I prefer is much more American whiskey, um, not rye specifically bourbons. And, um, but I'm not exact, I couldn't exactly tell you what it is about peat moss that kind of makes me go, Hmm, I think I prefer this. Uh, what, what, it's, what, it's what do you think? How, how would you describe that flavor? Uh, you know, it's definitely, uh, it, it's not like a, for, you know, one thing to think about with flavors is, uh, you know, you, you got to, you try when you're in the business, I guess, to come up with this common vocabulary where, so when you're doing tastings that everybody is, you know, kind of thinks they're talking about the same thing, like, uh, oh, that's baby vomit, you know, or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. You, you get a certain, and, and Pete's kind of a hard one, right? It's like, what is that for an American? What does that remind you of? You know, it doesn't remind you of much and nothing probably good, right? But it's kind of, you know, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's astringent. It's smoky, right? I think, again, when I think about Lagavulin, it's got that smokiness that comes from exactly kind of how I describe how they're using it, right? And and then for me, yeah. it's just a it, it's it's very comforting for some reason. I you know I don't know know why. I, I I know I'm I know myself, and I know I could get used to it if I drank enough of yeah. it. It reminds me a little bit of the 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 flavor profile you get when you're kind of near a house that's like being tarred. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that thing that's on yep. your your palate. Yep. Not the smell, but the yeah, I got you. the thing that's going on in your mouth a little bit. That's kind of the the sensation I get. It's very mm-hmm. similar to that, um, which I not a selling point. No, it it isn't. But it does also isn't like really off putting. It's more like I don't necessarily want to be too close to this house while this thing is happening. Yeah, you know what the, I mean? like the flavors that that I find more off putting are more you know. And again, you'll you'll hear these same things over. Uh, ba- baby vomit is a very common one. It's from a butyl. Uh, uh, off flavor that you'll get sometimes, but anything that's more kind of barnyardy, you know, like haze, okay, but when it gets a little more towards a little more funkier, and you'll pick those up sometimes, and uh, you know, especially when you're doing barrel by barrel tastings as opposed to you know, uh, which is kind of a big part of the the whole uh, conversation, right? Which is what do you do when it comes out of the barrel? And typically, you'd be looking for a common flavor profile. You need to you need to understand the barrels you've got in your inventory and how you can bring those together in the right proportions mm-hmm. to give you the flavor that your customers are familiar with. And I'll tell you, if you've got eight million barrels in your warehouse, that's easier than if you've got eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I've had some very strange alcohols in my life because I I go to all over the world, I'm sure, as you yeah. do, travel a lot uh, just for the job. And um, I think the one, I would call this the second, quote-unquote, worst alcohol I've ever had uh, was something called Gommeldansk, which is a Danish, uh, slash, I think Sweden also uh, drinks it as well. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a... It kind of reminds me of the flavor you might expect if you went into, like, a rainforest and there was, like, you know, some very muddy area and you took all of this like random like mm-hmm. debris and you squeezed it out and turned it into and then liquid, you know, and then added some tar because uh, it's got a very similar kind of peat moss sort of vibe to it. Um, and the first time I had it, I just I could not get this flavor out of my mouth. It was just terrible, like really, really just awful, awful flavor. But then I bought a bottle of it. Actually, I bought 
when I was at the the airport, I bought every bottle they had <laughs> and I just gave them out as the gifts to my friends just to be funny. Uh, but then I bought myself a bottle and I drank it over time and I realized actually I quite, quite a bit like it. It's actually, but it took, mm-hmm. it took drinking enough of it for me to go. And that's, that's what I feel about peat moss. I feel like I actually yeah. could like it quite a bit, but I would have to do that. I would have to spend time drinking. Yeah. Gotcha. She said so this, which I'm not familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, do you think it's the flavor is a natural component of the distillation, kind of like the peat coming across, or is it something they're adding? No, I think that? I think it's uh, something crazy, like 21 herbs and spices there or whatever, yeah. and, and it's that funkiness coming from yeah. some of those herbs. So that goes back. That's a good kind of segue, I think, into this idea of medicinal, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got uh, kind of two things going on. One, you've got poor distillation, that used to go on and you needed ways to just kind of mask that. Right. Uh, and maybe a milk punch would be an easy way to try to, you know, uh, get, get to soften up a, uh, a rough, uh, liquor. Uh, but the other idea of these botanicals is they're not really added originally for the flavor, but they're added very much because they were considered medicinal, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about green chartreuse now, and it's and the monks still make it by that same recipe with 130 or so, I mean, originally that was very much designed as this uh, this medicinal, and, the, and every herb supposedly had... Uh, some some uh, some specific property. Uh, a a well known uh, uh, spirits guy, camper English, just wrote a nice book called Doctors and Distillers. If anyone's interested in going down that uh, that rabbit hole, there's really some interesting histories around almost uh, every spirit where they're you know uh, doing strange things. And for me, the one that always is the biggest turnoff for me is anything that's got a that anise, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so even like Jägermeister, yeah, anything, yeah, so that, you know. So Gamaldons has anise uh, in it. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I just can't. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty abrasive. Yeah, yeah. so that's the anise. one I avoid. Otherwise, if it doesn't have a strong anise, I'm usually mm-hmm. uh, I'm willing to give it a go. So there's also this concept of the angel share. Um, Mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And that's a good one for kind of thinking about how to make, uh, whiskey in Texas. So, um, the, uh, yeah, actually there's a lot of, we could go a couple of ways on angel share. Um, I mentioned there's a maximum proof that you can put your uh, spirit into the barrel. And so that's your barrel proof. And that's one of the main things you've got to mark for the for the feds right because they want to be able to figure out exactly how much uh, alcohol is in that uh, barrel Uh, but what happens is over time the the magic of the barrel is the heating and cooling cycles over you know the years the uh, liquid is actually moving in and out of the actual oak right so the oaks uh, white oak is just a phenomenal uh, product for tight cooperage. I mean, if it wasn't for white oak, it would be, uh, it'd be really hard to do a lot of things we try to do as, um, uh, as distillers. But over time, uh, depending on humidity and temperature, you can lose either alcohol through the wood. It'll actually just work its way all the way out into the environment. Uh, and, you know, and if you're in a high humidity area, uh, you're probably going to lose more uh, alcohol. Uh, if you're in a very dry environment, maybe more water's going to just work its way out. 
uh, just trying to equalize, right? Um, and so that's what they call the angel share, right? It's what you lose just by evaporation, but you're in a sealed container. It's just evaporating literally through that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that inch thick piece of wood that you've got there, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and what tends to happen, and uh, you know, and you and you try to uh, soak your your barrels a little bit uh, before you fill them, uh, but you're going to lose some just going in the dry wood, and that, and that might not come back out, uh, and in the evaporation. Uh, and so depending on the environment you're in, you know, the, the angels share, especially the first year, can be a pretty, a pretty large number. Um, you know, you can lose, um, if you've got, I, I'm trying to think of exact numbers, but I mean, if you lost, uh, you know, over the time you had something in a barrel, uh, certainly 25% would not surprise anybody. So you got to really. I've heard as uh, high as 40 even. Yeah, well, I'm over, over, not in the first year necessarily. No, no, the first year is the worst, and you know, but then after that, it's like, and again, this gets back into like talking about Texas, right? <clears throat> I'm thinking more like you're going to have it in wood for four years, right? If you're in Kentucky, yeah, sure, you might have something in wood for eight, ten, twelve years, right? Uh, and so your number is definitely going to be a lot higher. But uh, again, I'm of the opinion that. Uh, American whiskey tends to be over-oaked, you know. I, I mean, we could have a long conversation around the tax structure that was built up, and the only reason that the Kentucky distillers ever asked for an extension to the bonded period, which is how long you can keep something in wood before you have to pay the tax on it, was only ever driven by the fact that they were shitty uh, businessmen, and they when they overproduced, they knew they were going to lose everything if they couldn't figure out a way to extend the bonded period and they had a lot of friends in congress and it often they got the way that they wanted but uh there was no that's an that's a way the angels uh share actually is useful because you lose that 20 percent that first year maybe maybe 30 40 percent over five years or something great well we tax us on the remaining amount not the original amount yeah, and that was always a conversation those guys had too. What were they getting taxed on? Was it was it with the evaporation tax or not? You know. So yeah, again, everything. And I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, it's a hard business. <laughs> it's a really hard business. But I think particularly those pre-prohibition years, uh, where it got so hyper competitive between the what they called the straight distillers, which were the Kentucky Tennessee guys, and the rectifiers and the wholesalers. Yeah, talk about rectification. I think that's useful too. Yeah. So, I mean, what I think people don't really realize is how much of a commodity whiskey was, uh, certainly pre Civil War and honestly for quite a bit longer. I mean, distillers didn't have brands. Most of them were just kind of, uh, it, the, the industry had not industrialized uh, before the Civil War at all. I mean, you know, that same still that you see popcorn sudden using, you know, a, a, just, a, just a pot and a, and a thumper with a worm to condense. You know, that's how a lot of folks were just, you know, and if they had, if they, if they had an, an excess corn crop, they'd make some corn whiskey and then they'd just sell it to a rectifier. And what a rectifier was, uh, was someone who would clean up whiskey that, you know, uh, needed cleaning up for lack of a better. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, Kentucky, uh, even back then made a lot of good whiskey for sure, but they made a lot of really bad whiskey too. Right. Mm-hmm. And the rectifiers were the ones and they had different tricks and the, and the primary one being the use of charcoal. Right. 
Uh, so just very similarly to how you'd put uh, uh, whiskey into a, a charred barrel, and that would help you reduce, well, mask, on, actually. And, and this was a bit of a uh, something that the industry didn't understand for, you know, over a hundred years was, are you really reducing those, what they call fusel oils, you know, uh, which give a lot of off flavors and tastes and have some poisons in them. Uh, you know, uh, literally, I mean, in small doses, believe me, but the yeah. kind of stuff that gives you a bad hangover. Were you really eliminating those when you put a, uh, something away in wood for years or were you just masking the flavor? It ends up they were kind of just masking the flavor. So when the pure food uh, law came around and they started arguing about what whiskey should be and what, you know, uh, uh, the, the, um, the purity, purity came up a lot. That was the word that came up around pure food law. Uh, it ended up the rectified whiskey was cleaner. It was pure in the sense that they were taking more of those, more of those fusel oils out of it. it, it you know, Baca is really probably the cleanest uh, of these, uh, of these uh, products. And so the rectifiers, instead of using thyme and, and charred barrels, they would just use vats of charcoal. And it works very well. I mean, you can take some pretty funkified whiskey and pour it through, you know, three feet of charcoal. And this, and this is kind of like what Jack Daniels did before. They would, char, they would use charcoal. I'm not sure how they got were able to do this because there was a real uh, church instead, a real, you know, wall between rectifiers and... Um, and distillers back then because they wanted to tax them differently and for other reasons. Uh, but the the reason it got so competitive was we got into, you know, by the 1880s, uh, and uh, the idea of brands were really kind of becoming more of a thing for consumer goods, right? Uh, and you had some, you know, uh, you, you've got some examples like Heinz and, you know, ketchups and beans and things. Uh, and, and branded beers, for sure. And the whiskey guys suddenly think... Like Bush, I think it was a big one. Yeah, Anheuser-Busch, sure. Uh, and, and that was true in Texas, too. Uh, Anheuser himself had a, had a distillery in, or a brewery in Houston. Um, but um, they, the distillers, <laughs> late to the game, decided they needed to be closer to their customers, right? It's just... It's like, oh, you know, we're too far removed from our end user. We're, we're, we're leaving too much money on the table. It's just this kind of like really standard business problem where, you know, now you're just a supplier, but they're the manufacturer, so it really annoys them, right? So they're trying to figure out how they got in this position where the rectifiers and the wholesalers are the ones making all the money because they actually own the brand, even though they're using this other product, right? Uh, and that caused this, that, that war went on for decades up until the, the Pure Food and Drug Act, where it really finally kind of came to a head. You mentioned a little bit about the Taft thing. That would probably be worth talking about that. Yeah. Um, I love this story. Uh, it's got a good kind of Texas angle, too. Uh, <laughs> if I lose my way, just bring me sure. back. All right, Taft is where I'm trying to go. And then, and then John, John Simpson is the guy on the Texas side. Uh, they try. They had been trying to pass a national pure food law for decades, right? Um, and now we're firmly in the progressive era, you know, early 1900s, and we've got Teddy Roosevelt in the White House, um, and um, he he decides he's going to get it done, uh, which is great. He got a lot of credit for it. Uh, he certainly wanted credit for it because it it literally had been such a 
decades long kind of goal for for uh, for progressives. Um, but the odd thing is maybe for folks that the passage of the law and the implementation of the law was a very very long road in the sense that they didn't have the uh, the regulatory regime in place to enforce it or even interpret it, right? They didn't have, you know, a full food and drug administration and all the, you know, the states didn't have their, uh, their corresponding bits. Uh, so it took, so Teddy Roosevelt, and he took it on himself and his, and his attorney general. I mean, they were like hands-on on this for years trying to figure out, how to interpret this law. And for some reason, and I, and I uh, attribute it to this giant war going on and all the money being thrown at all these politicians from the rectifier side and from the, from the straight distiller side, trying to get Roosevelt to interpret that law to their best advantage and to try to crush their competitors, right? Well, how might you do that? Well, you might really put a very tight definition on what whiskey has to be right and so real whiskey might have to be four years old always in oak you know you can think of things that would make it very difficult for a rectifier uh, who by this time I guess I should caveat off is now off making their own you know after the 1890s they they um, they they uh, legalized column stills the rectifiers don't need to use those old high wines from just your mom and pop distillers. They're making their own, uh, and, and they're just off on their own, which makes them even more competitively threatening uh, to these uh, these straight distillers. Um, and so that's pretty much what happens. Roosevelt completely goes, uh, you know, if the if the Kentucky guys were going to come up with their definition of what wi- real whiskey is and what imitation whiskey is then Roosevelt gives them what they want, right? And it puts the rectifiers in a really bad place because no one wants to write imitation whiskey on their label, right? Uh, (laughs) And that's pretty much what they would have to do. Well, Roosevelt doesn't have another term. He handpicks Taft to come in and be a successor, but Taft's from Ohio, and all the big rectifiers are in Ohio. Uh, And so Taft reopens this, it's considered a done, the story's over. They've already spent like two years, you know, it's a stupid amount of time that they've been spending trying to figure this out. Taft completely upends it, pretty much says Roosevelt didn't know what he was doing, uh, rewrites the law after, again, another like 18 months worth of work. I mean, again, it's just insane how much time they're spending, you know, at the national level just on trying to figure out whiskey. And Taft (laughs) comes up with these, uh, uh, very sympathetic definitions for rectifiers, basically making almost, I mean, still got to be grain for the most part, but you know, I mean, almost anything now can be called, can call, be called whiskey infuriates all the, uh, Kentucky guys. Well, in the meantime, uh, Texas has, uh, passed its own pure food and drug law. Uh, it was called the Bland Act. Not that anyone remembers it now. But one of the neat things or important things it did was it allowed uh, Texas to hire a uh, dairy and food commissioner, uh, which is going to be just a bureaucrat that can at least, you know, interpret the Texas law, try to, you know, marry it to the national law, make sure, you know, things are getting enforced properly. 
And so this dude's name is John Simpson. And John Simpson's like, he'd been a high school chemistry teacher until they found this guy up in Dallas, you know. And they're like, hey, man, you want this job? And he's like, yeah, sure. Uh, And he's in his 20s, you know. And I don't know that he knows anything about whiskey, honestly. Uh, But when he hears the Taft... uh, he, so he comes in, uh, they're still, you know, uh, using basically the, assuming the Roosevelt uh, definitions are going to be uh, continued. Well, then Taft, you know, upends this. And for some reason, this guy, John Simpson, just decides, no way, you know, no, that's not good enough. That whiskey, li- literally what he says is that whiskey is not good enough for Texans, right? And we're not going to allow Taft whiskey in. Wow. <laughs> Anything that meets the Taft definition is not, is going to be basically confiscated in Texas. Uh, and so then, well, what's, so what's he do, right? He goes uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, smartly to the pharmacopoeia definition. And he just says, you know, in Texas, we're going to require basically a medicinal uh, a level of quality in our whiskey. And if you look at the the thing now, I mean, it's better than, I mean, it's got to be four years old. It can't have, you know, no additives, no colorings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really sweet, you know, I, I have joked that I want to make his birthday a state holiday, you know, <laughs> because the guy, <laughs> you know. He deserves some respect. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, sh- and that's, believe it or not, kind of the short version of the Taft thing. I, I really do think it was because he had so many uh, friends in Ohio that he really needed to do something to, to alleviate the pain that the Roosevelt administration put on those guys. Uh, and then, unfortunately, you know, uh, Prohibition came not that much longer. You know, another decade, we're in less than that, actually, in the Prohibition, considering how long it took to all wash out. So then, you know, things change a- after uh, when Prohibition is over. But for a, for a, for a decade there, Texas had its own standard, and it was probably the best in the country, I'm imagining. And and so is that standard now been widely adopted, or is it— Well, uh, now, post-prohibition, we come back, and they just decide, well, we're going to have all these—now uh, now we're going to create all these standards of identity, kind of the stuff we talked about earlier— uh, and uh, there's different designations. Like now you can have what's called a spirit whiskey, which can have a lot of neutral grain in it, which would be basically just like mixing a little whiskey with uh, vodka, right? That's basically what you're doing. Uh, so you do kind of have to call it something different. Uh, back in the Roosevelt uh, uh, kind of definitions, that would have been more of an imitation whiskey. So calling it spirit whiskey kind of sounds like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. But, you know, that's not really, uh, that's not what we would call a pure whiskey. You know, that's kind of like in Skyland, it'd be, the, you know, the difference between the single malts and the blends and the blend. You know, people turn their nose up to the blends, even though some of them are actually quite nice. Yeah. But, yeah, just a kind of dif- different level of, of designation. So let's talk about um, the war. I think yeah. that was, uh, it was a good chunk of your book. You dedicated quite a bit of time to it. I think it was actually very interesting. Um, I think first is talking more about the medicinal side of it. Um, so the distilleries were actually very useful in the war effort, um, as a, as a combat related, um, producer of chemicals effectively. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that was particularly true in the Confederacy, right? Because, um, 
the Union blockade uh, restricted uh, the Confederacy from going to Europe and getting some of those uh, pharmaceuticals they would have got before the war, you know, things like morphine and uh, anti-malarials and, you know, just a host of things that they were already, uh, they were already making. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, at the time, uh, whiskey was considered a medicinal. So there was hospital use, there was field use, right, for, you know, pain and suffering kind of, you know, hardship kind of, you know, everybody gets a gill, uh, you know, as was very common in the Navy as well as the Army. And, and what is that? What is a gill was four ounces, you know, so it was kind of like a double. <laughs> give me a double. That's, that was their allocation every morning, you know. Give me a, give me a double, a, a gill, yeah. Um, Start with a double. Yeah, well, you know, early and often, I mean, that was, that, that, that was definitely the way. What, what, what were the average rations per day? For the military, yeah, I think four ounces was what they gave. Oh, all day. Yeah, no, I think uh, and and then so for the Confederacy in the Civil War, they stopped that as a standard. Uh, the Confederate Navy kept it on because they were having trouble recruiting. Uh, the Union Navy stopped it, uh, and uh, um, but that but but that's a little. It's a little complicated because there's always a difference between officers and enlisted men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the British Navy, of course, kept it up until like the World War II or something. You know, it was a big deal when they finally got rid of it. But there is a funny story before we <laughs> get to the botanicals uh, around that Corpus Crispy, uh, Cor- Crispy, Corpus Christi <laughs> uh, 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 naval uh, fire. The Union was in the Gulf and they were, they were bombarding uh, Corpus. Uh, and as I say, the, the Union enlisted, the sailors uh, didn't have a whiskey ration at that point. The officers could, could have whiskey. Uh, and on this uh, particular gunship, uh, it seems uh, some of the sailors had gotten into the officer's uh, whiskey barrel. And thinking they needed a place to store it, they had these old exploding balls, which they would fill with, uh, with gunpowder. And somehow they'd shoot them, and then they'd, they'd kind of secondary blow up when they, when they hit their target. Uh, and the Confederates, after the battle, uh, noticed there were a bunch of duds, right? Unusual little numbers. So they're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and so when they open these things up, probably hoping they could just grab the powder they f- they find they're full of whiskey <laughs> and so it seems that the sailors decided you know what let's store them in here because we don't keep them you know the powder probably goes in just at the last you know minute because you for a lot of reasons uh and assume that they drink it before they saw battle and <laughs> unfortunately once the battle came they had no choice but to fill the barrels and wow. shoot them in the corpus even though they were full of whiskey <laughs> so that that's kind of a funny uh, texas story but going back to the um the blockade and the botanicals uh in addition to those uh let's call them hospital and field uses there was also a real need to figure out uh how to create pharmaceuticals from local botanicals and so they, the uh, Confederate Army, or military, I guess I should say, uh, recognized this immediately. Once the blockade kind of went up, uh, they knew they better figure out kind of what they had access to, what they might be able to grow uh, more uh, uh, formally uh, for different uh, 
medications. It's like uh, an opium and yeah, hard alcohol for use in all kinds of different things. Like you mentioned anti-malarials. Yeah, anti-malarial is kind of an obvious one. I think it's easy for people to grasp. I mean, basically, they were too, and we're taking a, a several different uh, native tree barks and, and uh, macerating those uh, barks in uh, in medicinal alcohol, which was was whiskey, right? And so they they so t- dogwood. Yeah, yeah, I think was it willow. Yeah, an ash. I think there was yeah. there were several of them, uh-huh. uh, and it's you know it was a legitimate kind of as good as we can do considering we're in this. But they needed a lot of alcohol to do that, and I think the last year of the war, the Confederate military was using. 50 or 60,000 gallons of alcohol a month. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty substantial uh, amount. Uh, and, and, you know, by all accounts, very legitimate, right? So from the military side, there was just no argument that this was a war, this was a war necessity. But you got to look at it from the civilian side too, right? Uh, and that was, and this was, you know, Texas, again, is a really good example. You've got Governor Lubbock, one, he's kind of a teetotaler, so he's already kind of got a hair. To, you know, we, we, should, we shouldn't let folks, uh, uh, we don't want drunkards in the Army anyway. Uh, but his other more, uh, I think, legitimate concern uh, was that the amount of distilling that was going on, and given the already depressed levels of uh, farming going on, because so many people were off, fighting in the war, uh, that there were shortages of grain anyway. And if so much of that grain was being diverted to making uh, whiskey, uh, folks were potentially going hungry. And in some cases, you know, they, <laughs> they were literally starving. They, they literally or, or just couldn't afford the elevated prices. You've got to, to decreased demand, uh, yeah, to c- decreased supply and increased demand because of all the extra distillation going on. And so folks are, are boxed out, you know, they're, they, they literally can't afford to make cornbread. Uh, and so, uh, Lubbock, uh, tries to by executive order say, you know, I'm confiscating all the stills I can find and I'm making, I'm, I'm, in, I'm having the military enforce that no additional stills will be built. Well, the military, <laughs> says uh, from their side, they're like, you know, that's a no-go. If you're not going to let us contract for this, we're just going to build our own distilleries in state, which they did. They had a one of the medical labs, uh, Confederate medical labs, was in uh, uh, Tyler, and they, they had a still, uh, a nice distillery right outside of um, Tyler. But uh, what happened was, going back to the, the civilian side, uh, Lubbock tried to outlaw by proclamation. He got challenged in court by a distiller in Russ County who also happened to be the sheriff up there. So uh, he convinced a judge to, uh, to help him challenge it. Uh, Lubbock decided it would be better if it became a law, and he, and he tried to get the Congress to introduce it uh, to create a new law. This, and now we get back to the tax side again. Mm-hmm. The Confederacy's in dire need of cash more even than the Union, right? Uh, so instead of outlawing it, they decide, you know what, we're going to make a $1,000 per still annual tax for every distiller in the state and try to get some revenue. What is, what is that in today's money approximately? 
You know, like, I you know, don't about close to a hundred thousand. Uh, it's a lot of money between right? hundred and ten and hundred thousand somewhere. That I range. mean, think about how much money that is. Yeah. And let me tell you, that per was year. for you could tell, but that was annual, and that was for an eighty-gallon pot still. That's not a big. If you had a bigger still than that, it was going to be. <laughs> it was going to be more than that. I mean, that's a pretty modest size still. You, you're going to have to be punching out a lot. You're going to have to be, you know, making a lot of whiskey for that to pay off. Uh, but or hide a few or, woods. Well, <laughs> uh, that's a whole other interesting conversation <laughs> about how much uh, of that went on. Uh, but uh, but uh, there, by my count, I don't think there were more distillers operating in Texas uh, until probably just a couple of years ago, literally, like with all the craft going on in the state now. And there's over 100 craft guys in the state now uh, since the Civil War, right? That, that was the high watermark for the entire history of Texas until... Uh, very recently they just couldn't make enough booze to and they were just all these guys were making a fortune they really were all just making a fortune you know at one point earlier in the conversation you mentioned everything was like a commodity but not like it is like a commodity it actually was a commodity and it went from something crazy like 15 cents to two dollars a gallon yeah plus well yeah particularly in the north because that that was literally the tax became so you had a you had a commodity that was trading at about fifteen cents that they started taxing two dollars on top of that, right? And then you get all the inflation during the war, and so yeah, you're well above that mark. And uh, in, in uh, that's the, a huge amount of inflation. It's a huge amount, but. It really worked out well for the union. They really made uh, a big chunk of the money that financed the war through that whiskey tax. It was it was a smart move, and and they couldn't give it up. I mean, they couldn't quit it after the war, right? Which is where everything changes post Civil War because that tax. I mean, the taxes come down. Don't get me wrong, but they never go away, and they are uh, they are needed up until Prohibition. A big part of Prohibition. Uh, that whole run-up is trying to figure out, well, how do we counter the argument about how much federal revenue is tied to the, the, to the whiskey tax, right? We need to figure out another way. Uh, you know, so they try an income tax, but then that gets slapped down, you know. So it's this whole long, you know, there's reasons it took so long for them to finally come around. There's a lot of politics behind it. And that tax was a big part. And to enforce that tax, you needed just this draconian enforcement mechanism where literally, you know, the feds would, uh, you know, have uh, special locks on the, in the bonded uh, warehouses. They'd, you know, if you were over a certain size, they'd have an overseer that would live out there or at least be out there. The distiller couldn't get into their own, uh, you know, rickhouse unless the, the federal agent was there to keep an eye on them. It was really, a very, uh, a very uh, regimented um, uh, uh, um, uh, industry just, you know, by, uh, let's say, uh, 1868, 1870, you know, from then on. I mean, really early, uh, you know, and again, I, 
as I say in the book, I mean, compared to any other industry, nothing else was regulated like this, even by, by a long Not shot. Not like cigarettes or anything. No, nothing or pharmaceuticals. I yeah. mean, you had that whole patent medicine that went on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even the, the Food and Drug Act uh, of 1906 didn't really uh, uh, hem in the, the patent medicine guys as much as you would think. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's weird. You know, it's definitely weird. Uh, but... Uh, that that the, so the Civil War is a really pivotal shift, and you get to where now the 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 burden, the regulatory burden, gets so high post-war, and then you know of course you know South back in the Union by the mid seventies, uh, and all those guys that had been kind of either that old frontier uh, distiller kind of guys that, you know, they're tied to a, you know, they've got a, they've got steam from a sawmill or they've got an old grist mill or, you know, those were the early kind of frontier guys. It's just too complicated, right? I mean, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. So you've got very few guys who want to put up with that kind of headache uh, going into kind of this modern era into that last quarter century of uh, the 1800s. So you had one line in here that I thought it was kind of a throwaway line, but that was very interesting that uh, the lowest quality of whiskey was used in trade with uh, the Native Americans. Yeah. Yeah. That's not kind a, of interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it, um, uh, not, I guess not that a, shouldn't surprise me, but uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know what else to say on that. It's, it's, uh, obviously, uh, uh, not a, not a great look for those, uh, those whiskey wholesalers. What, what, I mean, what was that? I mean, was it just, uh, high proof cut and just call it a day, like yeah, uh, so not aged? Like what, what, going, what kind of whiskey was that? Going back to the rectifiers, um, I, you know, I, I, I think rectifiers in general are uh, kind of maligned more generally, again, than they need to be. I mean, there's all these stories about the way uh, they would, uh, you know, so I kind of describe them as, oh, they're just running, you know, kind of mediocre whiskey uh, through mediocre new make uh, through uh, charcoal and cleaning it up. Uh, but there were a lot of tricks, you know, that you could add, things to make it feel like it had more punch. So you could water it down, but then add, you know, something in there, you know, to, to give it a little more uh, kick. Yeah, certainly there were ways to color it with, you know, tobacco or caramel or some some uh, were nastier uh, things than others. Uh, and so the lower grades of whiskey could be pretty rough. And the rectifiers were certainly not all saints, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the the general consensus is uh, that the whiskey that went up and was traded, and so these would again be guys up around uh, Denison, who you know you're kind of close to the Red River, and you're just kind of uh, sneaking stuff in to the to the what was in the Indian Territory, um, are not sending their best their best product up there, uh, for the, for the native consumption. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, pre uh, statehood for Oklahoma, the, the, um, uh, the, those, those tribes were, were, uh, very, uh, concerned about alcohol use and had, had prohibition. So, you know, when that vote happened, you had kind of the Anglo half in the West and the traditional tribes in the East and, um, it was, uh, uh, everybody was in agreement that prohibition, uh, was important. And so Oklahoma was, 
Uh, I think at the time it might have been the only state that had a prohibition built into the uh, original uh, state constitution. Well, so speaking of prohibition, um, it seems like there was a pretty large spike in the <clears throat> the proofing during that phase. Uh, it seems like it was just cheaper to produce extremely like high proofed whiskey and vodkas or whatever across you know, state lines or whatever they were trying to move it around um, for the purpose of making um, people drunk. But then you had this thing that was just awful, right? It was just terrible, like not consumable. So that's where a lot of the spirits uh, that we currently think of in mixed drinks are, are start coming at, uh, on the scene. We start seeing a lot more like Manhattans and old fashions and whatever. And that's largely to cover up how bad this product is. Yeah, I think that's, that's um, partially true. I agree with that. I mean, I think the, the whole idea of uh, cocktails in Texas is kind of an interesting conversation in itself too. I mean, we talked about kind of, you know, that frontier mentality was much more kind of a shot in a warm beer was probably fine for most <laughs> of, of Texas. Uh, and so cocktails didn't play quite as much. Uh, and, you know, so these guys weren't even, you know, uh, it was kind of a, you know, a macho thing to just like, so the quality of that whiskey uh, maybe didn't matter that much. The proof probably did more than, than mm-hmm. anything. Uh, but there, but going back even to the 1840s, there were really vibrant cocktail cultures in Galveston and in Houston. Uh, and the funny thing when I think when people, the first thing they think of, well, you know, they didn't have any ice. So what are you talking about cocktails? But they did. Cause this guy, Frederick Tudor up in Boston had been shipping ice around the world since like the 1820s. I mean, this dude, <laughs> this is one of the crazier. And if anybody wants to get a quick kind of like, just like Google uh, the frozen ice trade. And it's like, what were they really? I mean, they were shipping ice year round from Boston to India. You know, it's just a crazy business model, but it worked really well. This guy made a fortune uh, and they, he was shipping, obviously, ice down through through the south. I mean, he kind of started kind of, you know, Charleston, Savannah and worked his way around, uh, you know, uh, New Orleans and uh, then was selling plenty of ice for 40 or 50 years. And, uh, you know, Galveston and, and that could get transported up through the state. I mean, it's really uh, an amazing kind of idea that it worked. Uh, and they never taxed the ice as a luxury. It was one of the few things that, you know, even though it obviously was a luxury, that was one thing, like, they decided, no, down here it's a necessity. <laughs> we're not. We're not. Uh, and so, uh, again, Austin, or Austin, uh, Galveston and, and Houston had these really, I mean, you get, you can go back and see guys kind of coming through and kind of talking about all these uh, crazy drinks that they uh, could get in these towns. Uh, you know, again, going back as early as, like, the 1840s. But the interest interesting thing to me is that Texas never had that pre-prohibition famous cocktail that someone down there in Galveston made and became, you know, kind of a national uh, drink. Uh, and I don't know why that is, you know, I'm sure they had a lot of great bartenders, but they seem kind of just fine, you know, making what people were used to that, that had come over from the, from the States. Uh, but, but one that, so when you look into that and you're thinking, well, are there any cocktails that we can confidently say 
were created in Texas. And, and, and the funny thing is, yeah, but it's not till 1970 when the frozen margaritas invented in Dallas. And I think it was 71. And you think, well, okay, what happened? And, and you know, why did that happen? Well, even though prohibition ended in the early 30s, Texas didn't go back and really reform its restrictions on uh, saloons. There were still, I mean, that, that, that carryover, that hangover from prohibition lasted from the 30s to the 70s. It wasn't until the 1970 where they went back and changed the law so you could actually buy a mixed drink in a Texas bar. And so a year later, you know, now people are celebrating. They're like, we need a new drink. And they come up with the frozen margarita, which I think is a, a very fine, <laughs> a very fine. If Texas needs to hang his hat on any mixed drink, I'm cool with it being a frozen margarita. I mean, it's like my wife's favorite go-to for sure. But, but you know, it's another kind of like interesting thing. You don't really think about how long that that kind of influence was, even, you know, even in Texas, right? We're getting, you think it's got this such a rowdy reputation, but again, there's always been this really core set of prohibition sentiment in the state that's um, for 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 a long time in its history really has, has really held sway. Okay, I gotta ask: uh, Are you an ice or no ice? I'm here? neat. Yeah, no yeah. ice for so, me. Well, yeah. So uh, the reason I've heard that I think is probably the the reason that I started drinking everything neat effectively mm-hmm. um, is. If you cool it down, you cannot taste the alcohol as much, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people prefer mm. to have their drinks cold is you just, you cannot taste the alcohol as much. And so if you, pref- if you actually enjoy alcohol, if you actually enjoy the flavor and want to know what it's the real flavor p- profile is, you want to drink it at room temperature uh, or maybe even warm, which is kind of even stranger, I think for most people. Yeah. Um, so that's I've just always been a no ice um, whiskey drinker. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I I guess I would recommend to folks that think they need a little ice, and there's nothing wrong with ice. I mean, I I, I really I, I one one thing I always tell people is just drink the way you want. Yeah, I mean, sure. Don't, but um, if you just if if it's just that initial burn that's really the problem, just let that thing sit a couple minutes. Just pour it neat, but just just give it a minute before you. You know, and a lot of that will burn off initially and really soften it up just a little bit. Uh, my uh, my the, the Scotch buddies I used to to uh, drink with that I mentioned on the front end of this chat, uh, they used to joke, uh, if you can't afford um, a Cullen 18, just buy 12 and let it sit 15 minutes before you start drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't, they weren't all wrong. Uh-huh. You know, you can soften it up a bit if you just let a little of that alcohol burn off. So Yeah, the, uh, the other reason I've heard is that uh, every sip is going to be different when you put, um, what, when you put ice in it. That, that's my problem. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, you don't get exact. consistency between sips. Yeah, like the I, first sip is not watered down, the last one's super watered down. Yeah, and my trouble is it's really hard. You might find like the spot you really want it, but there's no way to stop the, <laughs> the right. melting at that point, right? right? So yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I agree. Unless you want to fish it out with your yeah, hands right, or something. Exactly. No one's going to do that. All right, <laughs> I think it's time to start talking about moonshine. Um, oh, okay. Moonshine version of whiskey. So. What, what, first of all, 
what is the culture that uh, created that kind of sub um, subsect of the distilling industry? And then what was sort of the, the ramifications of it? Yeah. The, so let me make the distinction. We talked about a little bit before between new make and moonshine, right? Uh, they're basically the same thing uh, in that they're unaged uh, spirits, but moonshine has the added component that it's usually uh, untaxed, right? So it's it's not a legal product uh, as a new make could be. So you could have a registered distillery that's just looking to make some cash, and they'll introduce a white whiskey or a new make, uh, and um, it will have to. The other distinction is going to be if that's the case, then. It's got to meet those uh, some standards. Like if it's going to be labeled a whiskey again, it's got to be uh, a grain product. Whereas moonshines could be, you know, you've got these sugar shines that could be made just with cane sugar, right? Uh, they're made, you know, the whole popcorn sudden kind of deal, right? Uh, completely different animal. Never intends to see wood, right? Uh, it's going to be kind of just uh, uh, collected in a cistern, and then usually just put in gallon jugs and sold that way, right? And that's the whole, uh, that's the business model. Uh, the history of moonshining uh, in the United States, I think it's, it's um, very associated with the Deep South, and I think rightly so. And remember when the new tax regime's coming in just post-Civil War, right? Uh, and now... All the ex-Confederate states are coming back into the Union. Uh, and the IRS now is goes to all these distillers, and they say not only, hey, by the way, we've got a new whiskey tax, and so you guys are going to be taxed for everything you make going forward. They also say, by the way, we need to figure out how much you made during the rebellion because you're getting taxed for everything you made during the war. So they weren't I'm sure trying. That, I'm sure that went over well. Yeah, they weren't <laughs> trying to make friends. But, you know, I don't want to get into the whole reconstruction and all that crazy. Uh, not not a pretty history in my view. Uh, uh, but the Union clearly lost the South again for another 100 years in a lot of ways, uh, you know, after... <clears throat> The 1870s and Reconstruction failed. One thing they were not going to do was lose that tax base, right? So there were a lot of things they were willing to uh, give up as far as control in the South. But the Treasury Department was adamant that they were going to get that tax revenue. Uh, and so the enforcement in the Mountain South particularly was really, really aggressive, Right. And so the amount of carnage that went on in those in those uh, revenue wars, uh, you know, uh, right post uh, Reconstruction, so late 1870s, uh, I mean, there were, you know, I mean, I, th I forget now the total number of revenue agents that died in those, but you know, I think it was up in the hundreds. I mean, it I mean, it was a war. It was really a war. Uh, and if a federal agent killed a moonshiner, uh, local state authorities would often grab him uh, and try to try him in state courts uh, for murder, you know. Mm. 
not not uh, recognizing their duty as federal officers trying to enforce uh, federal tax law. Uh, there was a bit of a lull uh, in the in the 1880s. Uh, you know, I think they were trying to find that sweet spot where they could, you know, uh, get that revenue. You know, there's always like some point where people just say, you know, forget it. I'm going back in the woods. Right. Uh, and that, and that was hard for them to find in the 1890s. They had another kind of flare up where again, just a lot of gunplay, a lot of, a lot of dead bodies. Uh, and most of that again in the, in the South, you know, and I think it was, uh, as much political, as it was kind of an economic kind of decision, right? I mean, both are playing in there, uh, but I think it was a much political statement on both sides and kind of uh, real, real uh, kind of power dynamics of kind of national versus state rights, mm-hmm. and which, you, you know, you don't see as much in other parts of the country throughout that period, certainly not with that level of violence, uh, you know, there was a good bit of moonshining going on in Texas as well, uh, but not that level of uh, violence. You know, I, I, I think there's a couple examples of moonshiners being uh, shot, but the one, the, the, the example I found of a, uh, of a, a federal agent being killed <clears throat> was actually, it was weird in a couple ways. It was in the 1880s, which again was a bit of a quiet period. Uh, and it was one of these federal warehouse guys who was working at a registered distillery. Uh, and this guy, John Laws, uh, was a distiller. Um, and this guy, um, Garrison, uh, who I remember because of Dan Garrison, our first distiller here in Texas recently, uh, Laws decided Garrison was was sneaking in because remember now he's the federal agent so he's the one that's got the key, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the guy also seems to be a bit of a booze hound who's sneaking into Laws' warehouse and uh, and taking a few jugs every other night, and so Laws waits in uh, in in kind of his barn. He hides his horse. He waits in his barn. Sure enough, Garrison shows up. He waits till he goes in and comes out with a couple jugs, and he shoots him dead right there. Um, he's got a Confederate with him just to be his witness because he's sure no one's going to convict him, right? Uh, he goes to trial. He actually does get convicted. Uh, but then he finds a smart lawyer who says the judge misinterpreted the uh, the ruling on what uh, a, a legal defense is uh, against robbery at night. You know, mm-hmm. and there's this very Texas kind of <laughs> distinction. Uh, and, and so to be able to, to kill somebody, uh, you, 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 you've got uh, laxer laws, let us say, if, it's, if this happens uh, during the night. In your property at night. Yeah, well, but get, get this. So the other thing about property, it's not that you can shoot the guy only on your property. It's only it's shooting distance from your property. So if he's if he's heading over the ridge, but as long as you're still shooting from your land, you can still plink that guy, oh, right? Which know. is a Texas again, a nice right. Texas little extension. Uh, and then the definition of night is like you know thirty minutes before uh, after sunrise and thirty minutes before sunset or something. Anyway, the guy gets off uh, and. Um, he doesn't seem to have any remorse about it at all, honestly. Uh, and so that was actually the only uh, 
goods probably not the right word but example of uh there being uh, a death of a federal agent in uh in texas i'm sure there's probably others out there but that one that one to me was was kind of weird and interesting yeah sure i also heard that the prohibition kind of led to what we kind of now think of as uh, automotive racing um it led to uh vehicles being souped up and as fast as possible and you know, durable suspension and, um, you know, just, you know, be able to go like a bat out of hell in the middle of the night and try to uh, evade police officers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think NASCAR will confirm at least that they support that story. I don't know, maybe, (laughs) but yeah, I think a lot of those early NASCAR drivers certainly had a background and, you know, if you're going to put that kind of money into your vehicle, you probably needed a good reason to go, to go fast. And, uh, I think the, the bootleggers certainly, were, were uh, obvious uh, candidates. I mean, a little, uh, uh, you know, to me, a little darker uh, side of that story uh, is when you start looking post prohibition and they set up this three tier network, which, you know, uh, is basically that you've got retailers, you've got uh, distributors or wholesalers, and you've got producers. Uh, never the twain meets. You know, they they make sure that you know if you own a if you own a liquor store, you certainly can't own a distillery too. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to the the tied houses, T I E D tied. Uh, houses uh, that where the breweries post uh, pre prohibition owned a lot of uh, retail bars, and there was a lot of reasons that was just not a good idea. So post prohibition, they try to really separate these different tiers, uh, and you know, I got this is I don't know if I really want to get this down on on tape, but I guess I'll go ahead since I started. Sure, uh, which is. Distillers, I hate distributors. I mean, they're just dead wood, and they're and you know. Uh, but the story always that you hear about the early distributors is, well, who was good at distributing booze? Well, you know, it was there. There was a lot of bootleggers out there that ne- weren't even necessarily uh, producers, although they could have been both. But post prohibition, a lot of those guys were kind of naturally the people who knew how to move these products around. So you've got a class of, uh, of uh, a business that has, you know, no, no one's really kind of keen on their origin stories. And then certainly their business model is, is just really uh, needs to be updated as far as uh, mm-hmm. almost any distiller you talk to would tell you, boy, there's, I'm not sure for the 30 points they're getting or whatever, uh, that it's worth that kind of uh, that kind yeah, of there, cost. There's also some. I, I would have to assume this is a, a blue law, but effectively, you can you can only import certain alcohols, despite the fact that it might be exactly up to par in every other way. There's only a, there's a a caveat, a list of things that can be imported. Um, do you have any context for that one? Yeah, no, I don't think I do have any context for that one. Um, because there's definitely some alcohols that are just like you cannot get in Texas. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, I should actually. I know that's related. I, you know, again, that might be related to the reach of the distributor that you're working with, right? So if if uh, because these these uh, relationships tend to be exclusive, although you can't get carve outs. Uh, you know, so if I'm a Texas distributor or manufacturer, and I'm trying to uh, I want to sell in, you know, uh, California, uh, but my distributor doesn't distribute in California, then that could, you know, mm-hmm. 
uh, keep me out of California unless I can talk them into giving me that carve out where I go find another distributor who's exclusively maybe in California, right? So it gets a little a little complicated. But I think a lot of that is just uh, kind of how you're kind of tied to particular distributors. And so a lot of them uh, are either just, you know, in one state or just regional guys. There's only, I mean, uh, Republic and Southern Glacier are kind of the two big national distributors that are in the U.S. And if you want to go national and be available everywhere, you tend to kind of got to get in bed with one of those two players. Um, and that's, you know, neither of them are necessarily a great option for you, uh, to be honest. So I was going to ask a follow-up question. So the other blue law that I'm aware of in Texas is, uh, being able to buy in the morning on Sundays. Uh, how did you have any contacts for that one? Well, I mean, it was, it was part of that prohibition kind of chip you know pass with some you amount can, of temperance <laughs> yeah i mean uh, you know if you can't pass a statewide complete prohibition maybe you can uh try to do some you know maybe you can do something local uh or limited that you can actually get folks that will, will vote for and the sunday blue laws were something that almost everybody could get behind at least back in the day right so you see those uh really everywhere uh in texas they pass one Never forget uh, in Houston it it passed maybe in the forties I forget now uh, but there was a there's a famous uh, uh, Texas brewer who got uh, uh, charged with that and it took uh, it took like a, a ten or twelve years to work its way through the system uh, you know. Uh, it, it just, you know, so they were on the books, but I'm not sure they were always enforced or could be enforced well. Uh, but that's one example I remember from Houston where this guy, Gable, uh, of course, during the Civil War, he's one of those guys who switched to being a whiskey guy because there's so much money to be made. And then he went back to being a brewer after the war. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I think they were easy that you could get a majority of people to vote for. It's a short answer for why you see that as a particular blue law. So in your book, you also, I mean, in the title, Fires, Floods, Explosions, there there was quite a few, like, big catastrophes that happened. And I forget the number now, but it was something crazy, like 20 million gallons that went, you know, in the water or in the land or whatever that just not, did not make it to market because of catastrophe. So why is it so dangerous? Why, what, what is the problem? Why is it so hard to do this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough business for a lot of reasons. And and that going back to kind of like, you know, thinking about doing the book, one of it was thinking about why it's hard to do now. Right. Uh, But, but the the reasons are are really different. Fire is always a concern because you're dealing with a very flammable liquid. It's just a fire now is as worrisome uh, as it was probably then. But now, you know, you worry more about competition and regulatory uh, problems. Like, you know, uh, when we when we got still Austin off the ground, it took, you know, from like 2013 to 2017 until we opened. So, you know, three, almost four years, 36 months of that, we're trying to get through Austin Fire Department. You know? <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I, I kid you not, 36 full months. And um, the, is that mostly the heaters or the evaporation of the it is it is figuring out uh everything about what would happen if the place caught on fire or 
there was a spill. You don't like the fire thing seems obvious, right? But the spill thing is not necessarily so obvious because you could have, let's say you had a big tank full of, you know, 160 proof and somehow it started spilling all over the floor or maybe going down the drain would be a disaster for them somehow ignited, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you block it from going anywhere, particularly down the drain? So there's all this curbing that has to go into it. You know, it gets really more complicated. It's it's this containment kind of uh, idea around uh, what can be a very dangerous uh, liquid. Uh, there's just, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not, it's, it's not really that exciting <laughs> a topic. It's just a brutal, uh, grind to get through, you know, but I wanted to bring that up because, you know, fire is something that is just constantly, uh, a problem. And so when we go back to the book title and thinking again, just pre pre prohibition, uh, there's always going to be something burning down. Right. Uh, and that happened, you know, there's a lot of examples of places burning, uh, floods are a problem. The floods aren't as much of a problem. Now, the reason they were so much of a problem then was because it goes back to my kind of comments around frontier, uh, distillers, right. Often they would be associated with a grist mill, right. Uh, so you, you, the biggest, you know, uh, physical labor going on in this whole uh, process is grinding all that corn and the wheat, right? So having a grist mill, if you can be adjacent to that, that's going to be a huge advantage. And, and uh, that's near water? Yeah, it, correct. Yeah, Before yeah. pre-steam, right, then your best source of water or best source of power is going to be to put this thing next to uh, a, um, uh, a water source. And so, uh, you know, what I think is probably the earliest, uh, whiskey distiller in Texas, uh, Jabez Fitzgerald was up on the Red River, for example. And so he was probably, uh, producing whiskey in the late 1830s, I would think. Um, and you know, he was one of the early guys who just got washed away in a, in a flood up there. Again, it, <laughs> it makes sense when you think where they had to locate next to the sources of power, but then you've got the first guy who I think is probably the first guy who converts to steam. He's in Bastrop, just not too far from where we're talking. Uh, and he's got a general store, and he starts uh, distilling with a little pot still in the general store. Uh, his name's uh, Archibald Fitzgerald. And uh, he decides, well, he, his dist- he, he hires a distiller, but the distiller burns out the bottom of his pot still. Because it's direct fire, you know, you're just putting a fire under it, just again, popcorn sudden. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's not very sophisticated. And he thinks, well, uh, steam would make more sense. And they just opened this bass drop a sawmill that's steam powered. I'm going to buy into that and move my distillery over there, which he does. Uh, he gets uh, he just when he gets trying to figure out how to make it work though he scalds one of his employees to death with steam right and so yeah and that's exactly he's just like oh man uh, and by you know the the account that's still on the record it just kind of you know really sours him to the idea of being a, a, a steam distiller you know uh, so almost anything could go wrong the other problem with steam back then and this is where the explosions come in. Uh, is that steam boilers at that point did not have the safety features uh, that they have uh, today. Uh, And you certainly can still blow up a boiler. I mean, it happens. And when it happens, it's it's always catastrophic. 
Uh, but back then, it was a much more common. I mean, the safety, you know, release valves weren't a common feature. It was very much you had to work those things by art with a full-time uh, engineer. And so there's examples of uh, uh, Reeves and Files south of uh, Fort Worth being the, the most dramatic example of, uh, of uh, steam boilers blowing up and just completely destroying, you know, a distillery just just you know it's just like setting off a bomb and inside your uh distillery um and then of course the bloodshed we've talked a little bit about that but that's uh you know there, there was always a little gun play involved yeah but so the, the thing about the explosion though it's also the the alcohol itself is very flammable absolutely so it's so it's a it's like an explosion then a secondary accelerator fire, yeah just that just kind of just I, takes uh, everything out. Uh, and it, bad news. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not one of those fires you can put out easily. And also alcohol burns in a way that it's kind of hard to see it as well. So you might think you have extinguished it and you had just, you know, it could just go forever. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's just the lack of, uh, of uh, safety controls makes it. Especially uh, that super high proof. You're just. It could be burning, and you could look right at it. It you could wouldn't be, know. It could be clear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it it can be a dangerous business. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. So at one point in your book, you had a counterfactual that I thought was really interesting, which was, uh, what if barbed wire had been introduced <laughs> earlier, yeah. uh, and what effect do you think that would have had on the whiskey industry in? Texas, and I thought that was that was interesting counterfactual. Can you go into that? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you appreciated that one. Uh, it's um, so wh- where would that come from? Well, it com- it goes back to one of the major problems with distillation in Texas, which was a lack of refrigeration, right? And so back then, uh, distilling was always a seasonal activity. I mean that that's for sure. I mean there was kind of a spring release and a fall release, and that's how everybody operated. Uh, but spring and fall could be pretty long, you know, a, a fair amount of months if you're in Louisville compared to trying to do this in Waco, right? I mean, you know, um, and so um, what we needed was uh, to figure out how to better refrigerate our fermentations. That's the big kind of thing. Your, your yeast can't get too hot, uh, or you're, it's just going to die, basically. So, you know, we would set our tanks, I think, in, at Still Austin at around 90 degrees. You know, you don't want it to get, you start getting off flavors, and if it gets too hot, it's just going to kill it off. Then you've got not enough alcohol in your beer because the yeast died, and you're, you know, you're not getting your yields, you're not making any money. Uh, so uh, how does that relate to barbed wire? Well, the uh, and, and this is really an interesting part of the Texas story. If we go back to the Civil War and the blockade, they were working on early uh, ice making machines in France uh, before the war. Uh, the Confederacy uh, wanted to get their hands on a couple of them uh, to use in hospitals, particularly, and they did. One of which came through and made its way to San Antonio. 
And during the war, they worked very hard to try to make that thing operational. Well, it didn't help the war effort much, but it did create several really smart engineers or informed, trained a lot of uh, a handful of really smart engineers that stayed in Texas and tried to improve on that uh, LeCar uh, version of, of an ice machine. Uh, and they did a lot of work through the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly around the idea of moving beef in refrigerated. Uh, so the beef industry was going to be, uh, they saw as a primary customer for these early ice-making operations, right? Uh, breweries would end up later being the drivers in Texas, but that was too late for the distillers. Uh, but so the problem with the beef guys was, they made a ton of money in those cattle drives because they could just feed the, the cattle would just eat grass along the way. And as the story went, if they had a clear shot to New York, they would have taken it, man. They would, those cattle drives wouldn't have stopped in, uh, you know, in Kansas at the railhead, they would have just kept going because then they wouldn't even have to pay the rail fees. Right. I mean, literally it was, it was a, a beautiful way. It, 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 it added uh, tremendous value to, to uh, their stocks by getting them were closer to their customer. And it was a cheap way to, to transport and, and them. And they kept them fed the whole way. And they kept them fed the whole way. Right. So as the theory goes, if they, if the cattle drives and what killed the cattle drives was the fact that people started barbed wiring up uh, their uh, their ranges. And so the open range died, right? And so these guys had to come up with another way uh, to get their products to market. And, of course, trains are now moving their way deeper or into Texas, right? Uh, and so with the Katy kind of coming down to, to Denison as kind of the first connection to the Midwest, if that had happened sooner, right, where the barbed wire had got, and, and it became instantly popular once it was demonstrated, which was done in, in San Antonio, uh, then uh, the the beef guys would have had to pivot to the idea of trying to uh, move all their uh, uh, cattle by rail from, let's say, Texas but once you start thinking that way where you're not doing these long drives, then why not, you know, why not do the processing in Texas, right? Again, you're leaving a lot of value in Chicago if you're just sending your cattle up there before you slaughter them. So the processing business, which, you know, obviously was a huge part of the value chain for, uh, for beef, uh, could have been captured in Texas if enough investment had been made in refrigeration, which again, as my theory goes, only would have happened if the range had closed maybe 10 years earlier mm -hmm. and people had had to pivot and then make that, that transition to additional value chain processing in Texas with refrigerated rail cars. And, and that refrigeration system, that was effectively stolen technology from the union. Is that... Is that, am well, I, am I you remembering know, that right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that, 
am I misremembering it? Uh, uh would yeah, no. I mean, I think it was a it was a fertile time for cross pollination <laughs> of uh, but 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 the the stuff that came in to San Antonio had been purchased and just you know routed around the Union blockade, but mm-hmm. not stolen. I see. Uh, not not Union technology. It was French. It was European technology. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, yeah. okay. At least in it. that instance. Yeah. Okay, got it. Well, one of the thing I heard about the uh, barbed wire industry that I thought was kind of interesting is um, it was the largest steel industry on earth, um, way bigger than trains and the railroad uh, tile, you know, the railroad um, uh, lines themselves, yep. like way bigger, um, which I thought was actually pretty astonishing how m- just how much metal we were producing for it, these things. That's an amazing stat right there. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's obvious how much steel went into the railroads and to think that this would have been. And, you know, it was just this, um, y- you, you got out into the plains uh, and you ran out of all options for fencing in your property. I mean, when you were from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to whatever that ninety eighth parallel, uh, there were there were pretty cheap ways to fence in your cattle and uh, you know protect your uh, your garden and everything that you needed to do, and then you got out into that plain, and there was just there was not there was no way to do it until barbed wire came. Uh, and it was just a, you know, one of those fundamental changes, uh, and one of those really important adoptions that, you know, we needed to make to kind of keep that, that, uh, move that westward movement working. Uh, you know, another one important one being the six shooter, right. Mm. Which I talk about a bit in there too, yeah, or these yeah. adoptions to, you know, technologies that worked really well further East, like those, those long guns, uh, did not translate to to the plains and horseback and uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've actually seen. Uh, apparently, there's a lot of collectors, a lot, not just a few, a lot of collectors of different kinds of barbed wire. And it's not like there's one or five or ten. There's hundreds of different brands with different kind of twists and. Yeah, my father-in-law is one of those dudes. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It is yeah. interesting. I mean, I, I thought I would be not care about it at all until I looked at it. I'm like, wow, these are all very, very different. Like, And they all had like, different purposes, yeah. you know, how how aggressive they wanted to be against the cattle. And then you had to worry about what the damage they potentially do to the livestock mm-hmm. and, you know. Uh, and people were very, you know, initially uh, very uh, suspicious that, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of pulled iron would even be able to to hold back. Uh, you know, te- particularly Texas cattle. You know, uh, those, those big longhorns. Yeah, those big longhorns. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was uh, quickly proven that it was effective. And as you said, the 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 growth and the amount of uh, of metal that went in there was just uh, phenomenal. But again, there were, there were really no alternatives at that. At that time, so it was uh, uh, you probably know. probably still to this day. To be honest, yeah, um, yeah, perhaps, yeah. Um, 
I uh, remember one quote from the book. It was something like there, there hasn't been a cattle invented that could get through <laughs> these things. It was some p- sales pitch. <laughs> yeah. That was a guy. Uh, I think his name was graves. Uh, I should look it up because he was a really, and I didn't get into it. And I don't think I realized what a character he was. He was just a kid <laughs> when he was, and somehow he talked the, the authorities and let them set up in the plaza down there in San Antonio. And he wrapped it with this, uh, this barbed wire they had got, uh, was it Gates? I think it, maybe it was Gates, but then they his he became known as Million Dollar Gates because he'd make these million dollar bets. He was just this crazy character, you know. He went on to be a very obviously successful sales guy. Sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of these. Uh, well, he wasn't a distillery guy, but a lot of guys associated with uh, booze made a lot of early money, and then uh, 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 you know moved into a lot of other uh, businesses. A lot, a lot of them has got to be moving into politics very quickly thereafter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your distillery. Um, So uh, first of all, um, tell us all about it. Like, how did you decide to uh, get going with it? You uh, you met this people in a people in a elevator, and then suddenly you have a. So it was another husband and wife team, uh, and uh, the the husband. uh, uh, This was the Salinas's. he had a group that uh, he had put together. He was kind of leading this this gang uh, to build a small whiskey distillery somewhere in Austin. Uh, and we were literally, the first night we went out with these guys, we just had dinner and then went to Don's Depot and listened to a little music and uh, uh, got a little buzz on there. Uh, and I was like, hey, you know, Sal, if you could use one more partner, I've, I've been kind of thinking about, you know, something similar. And... Um, he says, yeah, sure. Uh, and then as I think often happens when you get a new set of eyes on a, on a business plan, you kind of start poking it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I poked it to the point where it kind of just fell apart, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, it wasn't that it was a bad idea, but it was just a little, a little half baked still, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, as I mentioned earlier, we were kind of going six months, six months, and uh, we went back to Santa to, Fe, to Santa Fe, right? Uh, and I felt really bad. I was like, "Wow, Sal, I didn't mean to, you know. I mean, I just was asking kind of, kind of. I think pretty obvious questions. I'm sure to you, they would have been kind of, you know, mm-hmm. on kind of capacities and and revenue streams and that sort of thing. Uh, and I let it sit for six months, and then came back and uh, reconnected and said, "Hey, you know, uh, if you're still interested." <laughs> Maybe we can get a new group together and, you know, figure something out. And, uh, yeah, they were keen on that. Uh, you know, both of us were kind of, uh, you know, uh, amateurs, you know. And so we decided, well, you know, I think what most people do, and certainly we're then, we're going uh, going back to that ADI. I talked about the American Distilling Institute. They were doing a bunch of classes where you could go and learn a little bit of the business side and, and play around with a little bit bigger equipment. Like, you know, you can only do so much with a little thing in your backyard or your garage or whatever. So we went and took this week-long class uh, out in Washington State. Uh, and at, at that class, we met uh, the only other uh, Texans uh, in the class were a father-son team. Uh, and they, uh, one of them, the son lived in Amarillo at the time, and the father was out in East Texas in Sulphur Springs. Uh, and they were 
further along in a lot of the business plan kind of bits of it, but didn't have a real good location. You know, they didn't have that experience figured out. Uh, and so we decided they might be good partners to kind of bring in as well. And so that's kind of, we brought them down to Austin shortly thereafter, kind of made the case for Austin as being the right place to try to do this. Uh, and it kind of, again, that was kind of, 2012, 2013, and we kind of got that was the original group, the kind of six of us, you know, two husband and wives and a father-son, uh, and then went out, you know, and, and you know, went around to, like, uh, uh, the Central Texas Angel Network, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and got a little early money from, from those guys, C-10, uh, and started building it that way and uh, kind of been chugging along ever since. That's great. Well, Andrew, this has been amazing. Um, first of all, where do people find your book? You can find it at Book People if you're local. That's where I would send anybody in Austin. I'd say go support your independence. Uh, if you're in a, you know, around uh, Texas, uh, I don't have a good list, but it's uh, it's probably on my Instagram. Uh, well, what's that? Which is just Andrew Brownberg. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> and then you can get a link to my linked page. You know, all and that how do you stuff. spell that just for the audience? Oh, uh, yeah. Andrew, probably people got yeah. Brownberg, B R A U N B E R G. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it is, of course, available on uh, Amazon or uh, Barnes and Noble online. So if you want to go that route and get it tomorrow, you can do it. It'll be there. Well, I honestly think that your naysayers are crazy this is a very fun read i thought uh it didn't make texas look bad it made texas come alive uh it was it was uh it was very fun book uh so i really appreciate you coming on the show man i had a good time thanks for having me yeah thanks for coming